Hello, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast, and my name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. I am so excited. I know I'm always excited for bonuses, but I think, <laughs> I might have said this before, but I, I think we've been doing bonus episodes long enough now that I've, in my head, lumped them into sort of three categories. Ooh. There are the bonuses that are for games that we are so excited about in that moment and just need an excuse to talk more about. Mm. And that was actually the very first bonus. That was Three Houses. Yeah. So like that had come out a couple months before we recorded that. In some ways, I feel like that game and, and our refusal to shut up about it led to the creation of the bonus episodes. <laughs> uh, so there's like the game that's like on our minds and, and something we really want to play. Mm-hmm. Then there's maybe ones that we're not like necessarily in love with, but we have like a longer conversation to have about it. Like we will always like a game if it gets a bonus, but I think of like Scarlet Nexus and Tales of Arise as two examples of bonuses that were like, we liked the game, but we had more issues with it than maybe we normally would for a bonus candidate but it led to a lot of really constructive conversation yeah um right that's less common but that's another one the other one i will label as homework the third category <laughs> the fact finding missions yeah, yeah. the fact finding missions where it's like it's not homework and that we don't enjoy it but it's like okay one or both of us hasn't played a game that is heralded as a classic mm-hmm. and we decide like now is the time we're gonna force ourselves to check it out and record an episode about it so chrono trigger i think we opened the year with yeah and that is a good example of that type of bonus where I had already had a reverence for that game, but you hadn't played it yet. So, and it was really magical because you found a reverence for it through that process. It sure so did. I feel like with the homework bonuses, we either <laughs> arrive at like, I'm glad I checked that out. Like these games are not, you know, legendary for no reason. Like there's something they've done yeah. that will at least be conceptually interesting. So at least we can have a conversation about influence. And at best we can have a conversation where we're like, this is still a masterpiece and it inspired me even today. Yeah. Which brings us to the two topics arguably three if you want to count the genre itself but uh for this episode we're talking about super metroid and castlevania symphony of the night the two games that are largely credited to leading to the genre name of metroidvania yeah uh, which that's going to be this episode i i imagine is going to be a larger discussion than just the two of those games themselves i think the term metroidvania has become a staple and also arguably like draining to hear at this point given the amount of games that are labeled as this yeah it's like a point of contention i think amongst a lot of people (laughs) like what what everybody is defining as a metroidvania which i i think it's worth table setting this by saying that originally this bonus was going to be a hollow knight bonus and then we were like maybe it would be more interesting to take a step backwards before we do hollow knight eventually which i'm sure we'll get to Uh, but but to say like let's talk about metroidvanias with the impetus of the genre and 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 you know eventually get there Exactly. So I guess to open, why don't we loosely talk about our history with the genre and our history with these games? I'll start because I think it's a little bit shorter if I had to guess, but Mm -hmm. my first game of this genre of a metroidvania um, which i know some people argue if it's even a genre and i think we'll get to that too (laughs) but essentially my first game like this was castlevania aria of sorrow Mm. which we revisited last year for our game boy advance episode and i loved it aria of sorrow was my entry point and honestly after this experience i have even more reverence for that game i think uh more on that soon too but um aria of sorrow kind of introduced me to this idea of a 2d side scrolling game that is not 
left to right in progression. It is playing like a game that would be linear in that fashion, but it is asking you to explore this big twisted dungeon and learn its secrets and and get through it. So that was my formative experience. And I didn't really play a game like that again until much later. My first Metroid game was for this show. Actually, no, my first Metroid game was Metroid Prime 3, which was sort of a, I enjoyed it, but I don't know if it really stuck with me as much. I think it was, that's a weird one to start with, I think. It definitely is, yeah. I love that game, though. Yeah. There's there's been this, like, wind of possibility space for a Metroid Prime trilogy to come to Switch eventually, and I'm, like, dying to get there. Yeah, I would love to play all those games. Yeah. It's been my backlog for forever. Uh, They're great on the Steam Deck worth mentioning oh good to know but my first metroid game other than prime 3 uh was fusion and i loved fusion Mm. uh we talked about fusion a lot on also that game boy advance episode and also kind of a weird one to start with because fusion seems to be a little divisive amongst big metroid fans because it's a big change for what the series is known for uh for those who don't know fusion is a little bit more linear In the sense that rather than having this sort of labyrinth to uncover, it's a little bit more divided into zones and it's a little bit more about the atmosphere and the story and honestly the horror. It it is a horror game. I would say it's tone forward, whereas a lot of other Metroid games, the the tone is kind of like the undercurrent of the experience of, you know, exploration and fighting bosses and leveling up uh <laughs> fusion fusion asked the question what if the the horror and the tension was the focal point of this game and exactly i think necessitated less of a focus on exploration because they need to drive you into narrative moments and i think that that was a really powerful choice a hugely risky choice but i still think you know for all of the the grief that that game gets i think every once in a while from from the metroid fandom i do think that there is still the framework of like a really solid metroidvania structure in that game you know, just because I it totally agree. focuses more on tension and on narrative and on linearity in moments doesn't mean it totally removes that Metroidvania side of the game. Um, it's still there in spades and is still great. And in some cases is more streamlined and like easier to play and jump into than some other ones that we may or may not be talking about today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that complaint is more from fans who have like completely dissected super metroid and zero mission and like you know know how to sequence break and know all the options and i think that there are that's the big thing yeah i feel like there's a lot of people who consider sequence breaking to be an inherent part of what metroid is yes uh, which we should talk about later I honestly, Fusion Fusion blew me away. I, I was in awe of what that game was doing well. And like yeah. it has it has things I would critique, but like that to me is still one of my favorite Metro games I've played. If not my favorite, I mm. feel like I did kind of miss. It, it's one of the few games where Samus has a little bit more agency in the plot. Yeah. Um, so like in the classic elevator rides down also very mass effect they use that opportunity to give you narration so there'll be like a close-up of samus and she'll just be reflecting on something and honestly like that little splash of story did numbers for that game because that game is i would say a good comparison point is like majora's mask where they're both a little creepier a little bit more inward facing and they're both games that are interested in dissecting what is samus's journey about Mm -hmm. You know, what what psychologically is happening to a character that 
is constantly losing her powers and having to start from zero over and over again. Yeah. And that cyclical nature of Crisis is is literally the gameplay of Majora's Mask, where that game is a Groundhog Day scenario of like having to relive the same three days over and over and over again. And also kind of feels like a twisted reflection of Ocarina of Time, which is like the tried and true classic adventure. I think you can kind of compare Metroid Fusion to Zero Mission in that way, where Zero Mission is a remake of the first game and is kind of like what you want from Metroid. And honestly, yeah. is like I would say uh, fundamentally and canonically, that is the most chill of the Metroid games <laughs> I've ever played. If you just kind of want to learn like what the game is about, like what what is Metroid in function? I think Zero Mission is actually a great one to start with because it does guide you a little bit more directly and it's just sort of a more pleasant experience than the horror of fusion um but who knows fusion might be the one for you it was for me and i think that really just depends on what you're looking for from the series so anyway my experience that's largely my time with with metroid and castlevania since those formative games for the show i have played symphony of the night for Castlevania. And I've also played all of the DS ones and many of the Game Boy Advance ones. I also played Bloodstained, uh, which is by uh, Koji Igarashi, who's like the main producer on a lot of these games. Uh, and that it very much is like a spiritual revival of Symphony of the Night, which is very interesting because that game coming out in 2019 and sort of like the wish for it, because I think that Kickstarter started in 2015. It's an old Kickstarter. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the, the thing that we're going to talk about a lot here is that the Metroidvania genre kind of began and then stopped for a very long time so <laughs> mm -hmm. the other games of the genre are largely indie games like the first wave of big indie games I know indie games have a much longer history than the early 2000s but I always think of Cave Story as like the moment where it became more mainstream and I remember playing Cave Story in 2004 and being like how did one person make this like unless you were really in the know the common idea of like who can make games like the idea that someone could make a game outside of like nintendo or sony yeah or whoever like that was a very new concept to me at least indie games have a very long history pre-cave story but i think cave story came out and sort of marked the beginning of indie games creating experiences that were inspired by older titles that the big companies have sort of dropped you know, I think you can you can also compare this to Stardew Valley, where Stardew Valley was created out of this desire for the older format of Harvest Moon games. And now we're like flooded with them. And I think a similar thing happened with Cave Story, where that game came out. And for a long time, almost every indie game was inspired by Metroid or Castlevania in some capacity and, and continues today, which is why, you know, you could argue like, OK, there's maybe too many of these games now, which I think is a happy problem, honestly. Yeah, I find that whenever there's a big breakout indie hit like that that you know kind of kickstarts this wave you know the stardew valley again another great example where now we have just a whole bevy of, of farming sims yeah i i find that it's less of like a we're we're creating this niche that people are going to capitalize on because now there's a market for this and more of like a revitalization of a genre it's it's less yes. of like a oh we're trying to fill like a product market fit you know it's, it's <laughs> exactly I, yeah not not that uh, games aren't uh, made to be bought by people uh there's definitely like a, a capitalist under undercurrent to the entire industry but i do think that there is this realm of like cave story coming out showed people that there still was a desire to go back and play things like the original Metroid and the early Castlevania games. And like that was still a viable method of game. And specifically that not everything needs to be like 
pumping graphics up to the max. You know, I yes. feel like the 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 peak thing that was happening at the end of each console generation was like you would look at the last game that came out for console generation and the first game that came out for the next one and be like, oh, my God, we could never do that on the last thing. And then Cave Story comes out and is distributed widely over the Internet. And everyone's like, wait, this is also great. <laughs> <laughs> you can have both. Exactly. Yes. I think you mentioning how this, you know, indie wave of metroidvanias wasn't trying to capitalize on a trend i think that's that's made evident by the fact that both symphony of the night and super metroid didn't sell well at all yeah they uh <laughs> super metroid like for any other game it did fine but i think upon release it sold like half a million copies which for nintendo even at that time was fairly low right for first party stuff i think for context super mario world sold 20 million units or something mm-hmm. crazy so like pretty small numbers and symphony of the night also didn't sell well at all in fact there was even an expectation for it to do badly so like it didn't get a lot of marketing yeah. and really the only reason that game did so well was honestly i think because of like people renting it and talking about it and like it over time became this cult hit mm-hmm. so i think when both arguable like you know uh parents of this genre don't do well commercially if you as an indie developer want to carry that baton in 2004 nevertheless (laughs) that's coming from a place of pure passion that is not a trend you want to capitalize on that is like i think i could do something with this it reminds me a lot this is a little corny but it reminds me a lot of um the brian eno quote about the velvet underground where he said something like they only sold 10,000 copies of their record but everyone who listened to them started a band yeah i feel like (laughs) Anyone who played Super Metroid when it came out became a game developer or Mm. at the very least those experiences, even now, even playing these games for this episode, playing both of those games in their best moments inspire you to think about what else could be done in this in this possibility space. Yeah, I do think there's something inherently inspiring about both of them. And I'm really excited to explore you know exactly what I'm implying by that. Um, but before I go on and on and on, I want to hear about your history because I know you have a very strong history with Metroid specifically. I sure do. Just by doing this show, we've both played a million Metroidvanias as well. But I, <laughs> I want to hear about you know your your pillars with these two series. Yeah, I I'll just say at the top that I, I consider myself uh, to really have two genres that I I'm always focused on and always going to be drawn to and one of them is roguelikes and the other one is metroidvanias i mean th- these have kind of been my bread and butter since i was like a, a wee lad uh <laughs> but interestingly enough i do feel like a, a key component of a lot of the stuff that i talk about on the show is emulation and playing retro games um and a lot of that was born of two things specifically number one was that growing up i had a sega genesis until the ps2 came out so i like missed a whole swath of video games uh and really didn't know how to go back and find them. Number two was that my dad is also a, a bit of a nerd as well <laughs> and figured out on our old gateway computer how to get uh, NES games running like through an emulator like in the 90s or like maybe early <laughs> 2000s. And with that came the original Metroid and the original Castlevania, uh, both of which I played a lot of, weirdly enough, when I was really, really little and didn't like either of them very much, but they were so difficult that I felt compelled to play them. Sure. Um, yeah. But never finished either, never really even got very far in either of them because I was, I think, you know, again, really little and didn't really understand what was going on or or how to play them. But at a certain point, I think they both like imprinted on my head as like things that I need to revisit at some point in the future and hop, skip and jump to the Game Boy Advance when Zero Mission comes out uh, and I didn't know anything about 
Zero Mission at all. I didn't know it was a remake of the first one. Even while playing it, I didn't know it was a remake of the first <laughs> one. I just thought, it's the Game Boy Advance. Here's Metroid. I remember Metroid from that old emulator on the Gateway computer. I might as well play this. Um, and loved, loved, loved Zero Mission so much. Uh, I played that game, got 100% done with it. When you finish that game, they also let you play the original uh, which was my clue that it was a remake <laughs> um, of the original, which was fun. And then uh, went on to play Fusion after that. Uh, didn't like Fusion as much, but still liked it a lot. Uh, it wasn't until we did our Game Boy Advance bonus that I revisited Fusion and, and had like a total love affair with it. Um, yeah. that, that was, to be clear, that was the one that made my list over Zero Mission uh, of the two. Me too, um, yeah. Which uh, was, was a pretty big reversal for me. But all of this time was also curious about Castlevania because I had had that experience with the very first one on my computer and like really wanted to get into it um, and have had tried so many of them. Uh, and th this has been an ongoing thing. If you've listened to the show for a long time, you know this about me, is that I like to keep trying things over and over and over again until maybe they work for me. Um, notably, like JRPGs became a thing. And now, I don't know, I'm talking about the fucking Trails games now on the show. So <laughs> that obviously worked. Castlevania is like the hard nut to crack for me is every time I sit down to play Castlevania game, I have a hard time with it. I would say the closest I ever got before this was the DS stuff. Some of those games, Portrait of Ruin, I think was really yeah. fun. Um, Aria of what's Dawn of Sorrow. Dawn of Sorrow. That's the one. The sequel to Aria of Sorrow. That was also like, ooh, I think I'm starting to get an inkling of enjoying this. But still, they never really grabbed me. Symphony of the Night, over the years, I've tried playing many, many, many times uh, and, and never got very far. And we'll talk about why, because there's a thing early on, I think, that happens in that game that is just like so aggravating, um, at least for me. Um, and there's a way that that game is structured that I think is really frustrating and it makes it hard to recommend to people now. So that was kind of the Castlevania of it all was like going into this bonus specifically saying, I'm going to break through the wall and finally like no matter how hard it is for me play this game even if i'm not enjoying it i'm going to continue playing it's Symphony a homework night. bonus yeah, very exactly. much a homework bonus but the thing is even the previous homework bonuses like you know chrono trigger was like a religious experience yeah but they can't all be that <laughs> is kind of the thing and 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 this i knew was going to be difficult for me super metroid i actually have played before i played it to completion on the nintendo wii via the virtual console uh which i really really enjoyed uh, especially having played zero mission and fusion at that point going and playing three was like oh uh, sorry super metroid is, is is metroid three going and playing super metroid uh was like kind of filling in some blanks for me uh that I, I thought was really interesting but also just being able to play a metroid game on the console like on the home console was really exciting for me yeah because i had only known them as portable experiences that i was bringing with me and kind of like chipping away at slowly but to have this like what felt to me like the theatrical Metroid experience was, I think, really cool. I then also got into the Prime games and loved those. As I was talking about, uh, I yeah. went back and played uh, a bit of two. Didn't like it very much until the remake on the 3DS, Samus Returns, which I thought was great. Um, I will say, and I, I, I probably won't go into this too much, but I will say that I have been playing a little bit of AM2R, which is called it's uh, short for another Metroid 2 remake, uh, which is a fan made remake of the second one, which I think oh, is, cool. is maybe the best version of Metroid 2 that you can play. But then all of this, obviously, if you've been listening to the show since last year, leads up to Metroid Dread, which to me still, even after playing Super Metroid again for this episode, is the peak of Metroid for me. And I think a lot of that is because I've experienced all the previous games and I, I have this like emotional attachment to Samus as a character and I want to get into like deeply 
what's going on with Samus as a character, because I, I think the way she's handled in these games is really, really, really fascinating and not literalized and really up for a lot of interpretation. And somehow Dread fully captures everything that everyone could have possibly thought about Samus and the way that she's handling all the stuff that happens in these games psychologically and kind of brings them to a head where she's just so fucking angry in that game. Yeah, uh, <laughs> she's very done with everything. Yeah. yeah. And and you kind of are, too. And the game is difficult and, and taunts you and uh is is horrifying and you're just like let me just fucking get through this and that's exactly how samus feels and i think that that marriage of that really strong visceral emotional feeling that you get while exploring that world and the tension that that some of those uh characters create some of those villains and some of those enemies married with probably some of the best lessons you could have possibly learned over the course of 30 plus years of making this genre you get you get the marriage that is Metroid Dread, which I think is like the peak for at least these two franchises to me. Yeah, I also really love Metroid Dread. I don't know if I would singularly put it on the top, but it's definitely I, in my head. There are three peak Metroid games, which I'll reveal later. Mm. But uh, I think you're right that something that comes to mind about Metroid Dread versus, say, Bloodstained. And to be clear, my my intention with this episode and, and both of our intentions is not to pit these two against each other. Like, I think we're going to be critical and, and celebratory of both games. But I do think it's an interesting comparison point. It's inevitable we're going to compare the two because it's in the name. Bloodstained, which is the recent Koji Igarashi game that came out that was this spiritual revival of Symphony of the Night. Because the other thing worth noting is that Castlevania just like stopped in 2014. Yeah. Uh, and even then, the last, you know, Metroidvania style Castlevania was Order of Ecclesia in 2006. So that gives a little bit more context for why this Kickstarter was so popular because there hadn't been a game like that for this series in, in over a decade. Yeah. And it was clear that the creator and the producers were upset about that and still wanted to keep making them and kept, yeah. they weren't allowed to create them. You know, they, they weren't exactly. getting greenlit. So I, and, and Bloodstained is out. I love Bloodstained. I think it's great. Honestly, I think if I were to recommend like a handful of like Castlevania ish games, it would be one of them. But I do think it's telling that that game feels like it was made in a vacuum. The thing with Bloodstained is that while it definitely has like, cleaner edges and there are improvements in that game it definitely does feel like kind of an encore of symphony of the night mm. whereas metroid dread just feels like there is more influence from the metroidvania genre as a whole like it feels like okay yeah. like there's a little bit of ori in this there's a little bit of souls in this because like there's a focus on combat and momentum that isn't really in even super metroid you know mm. so I, I think that it is cool to see and I, and I can see why you would say dread is like the peak of the series because it does feel like all the lessons have been learned which is also kind of narratively mirrored by samus being like her best self and it's just like on a victory lap basically <laughs> yeah so i mean that's my history that's my history with uh, history. With, with both of these franchises I, it's probably worth mentioning because it'll come up uh I, i've played a lot a lot a lot of other metroidvanias um outside of these two franchises specifically uh as we mentioned the indie scene has really taken the ball and run with it in in some pretty major ways um especially i mean even in the absence of metroid right because metroid prime was like the thing for a long time until metroid dread came out uh there was this like ongoing long rumor that there might be another 2d metroid coming for a long time i think it was if i recall correctly uh patrick klepik who was like when i first started writing about games i reported on metroid dread being in the works for the nintendo ds and here we are you know 20 years after that yeah 
it's finally coming to the Nintendo Switch, uh, which is very funny. But, uh, you know, that game was in production for a really long time. And as you said, there were no Castlevania games. So it really was like you're just filling in the blanks with with indies. I do think the other thing that's worth mentioning is the rise of the Souls-like which yes. is a is a in my eyes a fork of Metroidvanias as well. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dark Souls one especially, uh, yeah. and I think you can see both of these games. Like, I think if there's one game that really does feel like it's these two games that bore it, it's Dark Souls one. Yeah, because that, and I I think. I, I'm like restraining myself because I feel like there's some things I want to say for the specific game discussions, but I think we'll circle back to a lot of these points throughout the episode. But I think you're right that there's a reason why these games led to Demon Souls and Dark Souls. And Miyazaki has cited Zelda as a major influence. And I think there's also a lot of parallels to Zelda here. With, yeah. You know, in, in some ways, Metroid does feel like a 2D Zelda. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that's worth remembering is like when when this genre began or when you know Metroid Super Metroid came out the open world genre wasn't a thing yet so like the idea of like okay we're going to take the established convention of side scroller but break it out of the format of levels and worlds and all of that and i honestly think that that design you know became its own thing but i do feel like it's the first attempt at making an open world game yeah. with the current game design um which i think that's why there's such a vague definition of what counts as a metroidvania because like even something as open as elden ring does have like a lot of simon's quest in it and a lot of like metroid in the legacy dungeon parts yeah. honestly a lot of symphony of the night you know there's a lot of like weird breakable walls and item descriptions and all that like that's that is present in both games so i i think that's really fun i think that's kind of why we wanted to do this is like even if it's not these two games that were holding up on the same spotlight it's so cool to see how the path of influence is kind of amorphous and just sort of bleeds in all directions yeah i would also say and and maybe this is better to put earlier in the episode i mean we've already been talking for a half hour so i don't know how early <laughs> this is but it's yeah. better to put early in the episode than later is i i feel very strongly that uh, words and genres are meant to evolve and change. Yes. And there are a lot of people on the internet who I've seen in doing research for this episode who feel very strongly about what a Metroidvania is and will say things like Cave Story isn't a Metroidvania, for example, because of X, Y, and Z thing. I feel like the point of art is to change and evolve over time and taking inspiration from a piece of art and pushing it forward is not breaking out of the conventions of a thing but it's changing what the conventions of a thing can be so when it comes to metroidvanias i think that it's helpful to have a descriptor for the genre first of all because there there's contention there even that the, that the word is annoying and people don't like it uh, i feel very strongly that it's like helpful to have that as as a reference point as did stumble on a wikipedia article uh it said some people call them castle roids and i'm like <laughs> never have i been less confident in wikipedia as a source because i'm like who on earth has ever said Castleroid <laughs> and expected to not be like immediately bullied, yeah. you know? <laughs> Castleroid. I really hate that so much. Yeah. It's which horrifying. I, 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 I feel like, and I want to hear what you were you were leading up to, but I think it's also <laughs> worth pointing out that the term itself wasn't and this is this leads to what you're saying about like genres are meant to be like a compass rather than a box. Yes. You know, they're meant to yes. sort of like like, OK, like language as a whole is giving sort of 
a, a signifier to something that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. You know, and I think with with Super Metroid, the name didn't really appear until something the night. And from what I've read, it's not clear like there wasn't like a moment recorded where someone said like said it for the first time. I think Jeremy Parrish is like the guy who's mostly credited with it. Mm. But even he has said that it wasn't him who first said it. So right. and even in that, it seems like the word came to be because Castlevania had suddenly found this new direction for the series that was strikingly similar to Metroid. So it seems like the word originated more as a way to describe the new direction for Castlevania and not necessarily as a genre. Because again, the only games that were Metroidvanias at the time were these two series, you know, yeah. and then uh, then eventually you got way more. And there are also games that precede even Super Metroid that you could potentially see like, OK, this led to that. This led to that. You know, I, I do think that in many ways, Super Metroid, it's really fascinating because I feel like there are so many games now we see like, OK, the success of Breath of the Wild, like a lot of different series are trying to be like, OK, what if we put our thing into that format and see mm-hmm. if that benefits? And that's really cool. But I think there's something even more powerful about looking at at what hasn't worked and trying to make good on it. So I feel like Super Metroid is yeah. like, okay, Metroid 1, there were big ideas there, maybe held back by sort of game design and hardware limitations, you know, in, in the late 80s. Simon's Quest, uh, Zelda 2, also like weird NES sequels that like had really admirable visions, but kind of failed in execution. So I feel like Super Metroid being like, there's something there we're going to try again and working. You can see that mentality as recent as Elden Ring again I do think Elden Ring is making good on a lot of games that like failed in their execution and I think that's so cool to see because it's not scorching the attempt you know like I think that there's a lot of power in seeing okay what are the modern blueprints of design Breath of the Wild obviously has set a new standard for what an open world game could do but I think Elden Ring proves that you can learn just as much by seeing what didn't work and trying again and I think Super Metroid is one of the earlier examples of that, like as a game philosophy. Yeah, I, th- I think what's interesting about it, too, is uh, the Metroidvania genre and the name used to describe it is is mainly pulling from two discrete franchises that are trying to tackle a similar thing with different like aesthetic uh, visions. But a lot of the other genres that exist that we love, like Souls Likes, for example, are like really just born of like the FromSoft line of video games. Uh, yeah. People people trying to just like pull what disparate pieces they can out of those games and say like this is what makes up a Souls like or something like a roguelike, for example, which is also firmly rooted in the video game rogue. Uh, that's where the name roguelike comes from, which is very interesting. And I and I I'm curious why and I guess why not uh, why we don't have like a term for people that say Breath of the Wild like yet. I mean, because that can't be it. Uh, breath games. Yeah, I like guess stranding games are kind of breath like. Yeah, str- yeah, strand game. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I I really appreciate that before Death Stranding even came out, Kojima was like, "This is the first strand game. It's a new yeah. genre that I'm inventing." Uh, I really love that, and I hope that somebody eventually runs with uh runs with it and says, "This is the second strand game." But I anyway, just to circle back, I think I yeah, think yeah. Metroidvania I think is a helpful term. Um, and and I think if you say it and people can inherently understand what you mean by it, then that means that it's it's useful. Unlike Castle Royd, which is a fucking nightmare, but is actually yeah. maybe even better to describe the aesthetic of these games. <laughs> uh, Metroidvania describes game design. Castle Royd describes tone. <laughs> um, but I, I, th- I think of it in the same realm as roguelike. And, and I, I feel like a lot of people also push back against the, the, 
uh, genre classification of roguelikes and feel like that is, uh, like you said, a box. Like people people fit roguelikes into a box and have since developed a new term, roguelite, to uh, to like fork off of that and say like, well, there's roguelikes, which is one thing, and then roguelites, which is another thing. And I'm like, just keep roguelike. Roguelike can evolve. Roguelike can be a bunch of different things. It's helpful to know the history, obviously. And that's kind of what I want to get at here. Is like, it's helpful to know the history of all this stuff and where the the naming convention started. But it's also helpful to know that these things can evolve and change over time. And and knowing all of that context will inform your thoughts and feelings about it going forward. I mean, I I have written some extremely unhinged blog posts in my day i wrote one that was like uh, good sudoku is a roguelike which i still firmly believe in um <laughs> just like i i can feel very strongly that that dark souls is a metroidvania and and that's totally cool yeah so i just wanted to like table set all of that because the term metroidvania is going to come up a lot on this episode and i know it like chafes against people and i i i don't want to like say that you're wrong for thinking that but i just want you to know where my philosophy is coming from here that i think i think it's a helpful term yeah i think it's also telling there isn't an alternative no one's like i love wall testers you know like no no one's no one's saying like i love gate punk you know it's it's <laughs> wait a second <laughs> that might be pretty good actually <laughs> gate punk is hot i think that's really good <laughs> i need to I need to check if this is a thing, because if it's not, I am taking full credit. Should we change? We were going to call this episode the Metroidvania episode. Should we call it the Gate Punk episode? Gate Punk. I see. Okay. Gate Punk pulls up stuff, but it seems to all be NFTs. (laughs) (laughs) All the more reason to go all in on it. Yeah. If we if could you strip are... the, the, the NFT yeah. hawkers of the internet uh, of their term. If we can decrypto gate punk, I think that might be a, a good uh, a good analogy All right. or a good alternative for Metroidvania. If you're out there and you hate the term Metroidvania, please start using gate punk. If you hate the term <laughs> Metroidvania and you also love NFTs, then I don't, I don't know what you're doing here, dear listener. <laughs> I think that might be a good note to conclude this intro on. <laughs> Yeah, sure. That's, that's a good I idea. I have a question for you. We haven't decided. Which game do you want to do first? Oh, should we flip a coin? Yeah, let's flip a coin. Pick what's going to be Heads. Heads is Castlevania, because what is a man but a miserable pyro of secrets, <laughs> which is the the, the the illusion of money. Tails is uh, Metroid for Ridley and the monsters. Sure. We're talking about Castlevania first. Hell yeah. Buckle right. up. Tis the season. It, I will say, if you are looking for a Halloween game, it's got to be Symphony of the Night of the yeah. two. Like, there's definitely like an alien atmosphere of Super Metro that you could count as Halloween. But I mean, are you fighting skeletons that throw bones at you? No. Yeah. So it's got. So therefore, it's the better game of the two. And and this episode is over. Horror as a genre can also contain multitudes. Absolutely. Both can be yes. true. On that note, I will see you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Brendan. Steven. We're here. Alucard. Dra- Dra- <laughs> Son of Dracula. Dracula backwards? <laughs> yep. Alucard is here and spoilers. he's inviting us. Spoilers. I think it's pretty clear. He shows up and death is like, the son of Dracula? Yeah, yeah. It's like the first thing that happens. Isn't your name Dracula backwards? <laughs> Enough, demon. <laughs>
<laughs> uh, we are in Dracula's Castle, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I think it came out in 97, I believe, uh, originally yes. for the Sega Saturn and the PS1. Although I believe the PS1 was the North American release. Uh, there are actually differences. So in the Sega Saturn version, you could play as Richter and Maria from the very beginning. Um, and there were like other areas, but apparently it didn't perform quite as well. So I, for this episode, on my Series S, I played the Xbox 360 port, which is largely the PS1 game. So it was so funny earlier today before we started recording. I was also just in the middle of like revisiting it and, and just kind of running around the castle. Yeah. And I saw the Xbox 360 pop up that was like you signed on also to play Symphony of the Night. Yeah. Which was like really sent me back to 2007 for a second. Yeah. Whenever you play Xbox 360 or Xbox games on the Series S or X, they make like a pseudo Xbox Live account for you. Yeah. I also saw it was like Brendan's playing Symphony of the Night. I'm like, I know. You don't have to yeah. tell me. Um, <laughs> it was very funny. You can get this game pretty much anywhere. Uh, but the difference is the the Xbox version, again, is the port of the PS1 version if you get the bundle which is on the playstation store which is rondo of blood and symphony of the night that is a port of the psp port uh, which is different it's got the revised script which does make more sense but isn't as fun and uh there's some graphical differences as well overall i would say go xbox i, was, I think that's like the better way to play if i if i had to make a point do you disagree I no, I don't I don't disagree. I mean the the translation differences by themselves are worth playing the original Xbox version for uh, or the original PS1 version. Um I played this game in a lot of different places for the episode specifically so oh, I cool. cuz I I love coming to these episodes by saying like here's the place you should play it. Yeah. I played this game mostly uh, on the Xbox 360, which was honestly great and that is the version I would recommend if you have access to it. Uh it's one of the easiest to obtain, which I think is helpful in terms of like that version specifically. Uh, and that's very helpful. I also played this on the PlayStation Vita, which was an mm. interesting experience because yeah. uh, it's just running the PS1 version, uh, which was very cool. So that was also nice just to have it like handheld like that. I really appreciated that. But, you know, also it's not super easy to go get a Vita and get the PS1 version on your on your Vita. So uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not the easiest version. Um, and then the other one that I played uh, and put a lot of time into was specifically the the PlayStation version that's available right now, which is, as you said, the retranslated version with those changes, but also includes a bunch of really fun stuff, like all the different like aspect ratios you can play in um, and includes like the screen filters to give you kind of like a CRT vibe. That's the PSP one. No, it's like it's I, I don't know the the whatever version is available on the on the PS4. I'm not really. Oh sure. right, that that is that is a port of the PSP port, right? Yeah, it's a little okay. confusing. Yeah. It looks it looks great uh, and runs really well, uh, but has you know the updated translation and stuff, which is I, I think a little bit less fun if I if I were to if I were to put one uh, criticism against it, but still is widely available and very easy to pick up and play. Um, it's strange that these aren't available on Switch. Yeah, I, I, I thought it would be a no-brainer because there's also like, I just got, there's a Castlevania collection for Switch that is like one, two, three, a bunch of the Game Boy games. And then they also recently released the Game Boy Advance Castlevania games. Yeah, which is is definitely worth it for yeah. Ari of Sorrow. Uh, I'm going to break glass in case of emergency and talk about that later because I also did purchase that. Uh, so just, just a heads up that I'm going to be talking about the Advance <laughs> collection uh, a little bit later in the episode. Amazing. So yeah, I, I have played something I largely on Xbox. I did, I did play a little bit on PS4, but I settled on Xbox for my playthrough mm. and it was, I had a great time. I have a lot to say, but I wanted to open <laughs> with, I had a lot of fun with it and I weirdly did feel 
frankly, I enjoy Super Metroid more. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, this game pulled me back more consistently. Like mm-hmm. a- after every session of Super Metroid, I felt really full. I felt very inspired and content. And I felt pissed off every time I finished playing this game. And I had to go back just to like, it kind of had that souls hook where I'm like, I need to know what's in that fucking library. Like, I can't believe I yes. missed that, that one thing. So it's worth noting again, um, Symphony of the Night marks a big turning point for Castlevania. This is something I've been really excited to talk about because I have some, I have some theories and I might be wrong. <laughs> There's no way to prove this stuff. But I do think it's interesting to look at the history of the series, because with Metroid, even though Super Metroid, I think, was the there are a lot of games on the Super Nintendo that feel like it's the moment the series found itself. So a really clear parallel to Metroid is Zelda, where like Zelda one and Metroid one on the NES are both games that are really novel for when they came out. I imagine they were mind blowing at the time because like, again, a lot of the stuff on Atari was abstract to what the idea was. Mm. So it'd be like, you're in space shooting asteroids, but you're really a triangle shooting circles. The idea yeah. that like you are visually what the game is about, I think was a huge deal. <laughs> and I do think Metroid and Zelda one are worth experiencing. If you're fans of the games, I think they're both rough. I do think Zelda one is more fun than Metroid one. Metroid feels a little bit more archaic even for that system. Yeah. Um, but they're both like trying to do an idea that is maybe bigger than the game can handle. Uh, and then they both have kind of strange sequels that miss the mark even more somehow. But then the third time, third time's the charm, you got Link to the Past and Super Metroid, which are just like miracle games. Like It's really amazing to play both those games and to see like they got it so right that in many ways we are still like riding that yeah that formula like we haven't really as much as i think like metroid dread has really refined things from super metroid like 80 percent of it is here you know and link to the past i would say it's a similar deal i think that metroid 2 gets lost in this conversation a lot and i just want to give it a shout out because i oh, think please that, do yeah i think it is an incredible video game unfortunately just being on the game boy was kind of the death knell for it like i, yeah. I think that that game actually does improve a lot and sets the, a lot of the foundation for what Super Metroid was supposed to be. But unfortunately, being on the Game Boy just means that it feels more limited than it actually is. Um, that game gets so much right in terms of its structure and its pacing. It, it adds a little bit more linearity, so you're not hunting for shit uh, as, much yeah. as, as much as you were in the first game. Um, but the, the big thing for me is that I, I think, you know, you got to look at the original Metroid and say, like, it's amazing that that game exists and it's very cool. And they got a lot right on that first go around. But the things that they get wrong are so grating and so troublesome. For example, like if you die, you lose all your health and you don't get all your health back when you come back. So you literally need to farm for health when you die. And that literally just means you have to go find one of those like pits where enemies just come out forever, like out of like a pipe and just sit there for actually 10 minutes and farm your health back. <laughs> That's like nonsense. And that should never have been the case. And it and feels like a situation where it's like either nobody thought of it or they left it in specifically to like elongate the play sessions for this game and just make it feel like a longer experience. So there's that. The other thing is just the limitations of the hardware mean that a lot of the areas don't have visual identifiers that make them clear in, in the player's head. I think where you are at any given time, because, you know, there's just kind of a certain tile set that they can pull from. Um, and that means that it's 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 hard to tell where you are unless you're like doing the paper map thing that people used to do, like on grid paper. Yeah. Um, so all of that got fixed in the second one. 
which I think is, you know, by itself makes it leaps and bounds better than the first one. It's just, you know, it's a really tiny screen uh, is, is kind of the big thing. And then you get to Metroid 3 and it feels like what they did with Super Metroid really was taking everything that worked about the first game, taking like the vibrant color and a lot of the the environmental atmosphere of that game and blending it with the gameplay refinements of the second one, making this thing that we consider to be like the ultimate. Um, and, yeah. and make it the masterpiece that people think of today. Totally. I, I appreciate you stepping in there because when I said weird sequel, I was largely thinking of Zelda 2, which is like, there are, again, cool ideas there, but it's yeah. it's a wild game. <laughs> yeah. That like, game I is can't absurd. Really, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, I, yeah. Don't, I don't have very many nice things to say about that one. <laughs> I do think, though, Metroid 1 feels almost like a reflection of, of Super Mario Brothers, which like, mm. you know, everyone, 1-1, one, one, Goomba, left to right. That game is kind of challenging that understanding because you actually have to go left first yeah and then you get the 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 morph ball ball and you're able to progress so there's like kind of a a flip of of expectation there which i think i think that kind of sums up metroid's early games like they were trying to defy expectation and defy established design in a lot of games all this to say castlevania one on the (laughs) nes yeah is sick it is i would say one of the best castlevania games and that's the curse of castlevania they got it so right in the first <laughs> NES game that every game after that is like, what do we do now? Yeah. You know, there's this like motivation. What a horrible night to have a curse. Am I right <laughs> or what, Steven? God damn it. I, I mean to set you up like that, but that was just volleyball. So I, I feel like there is something to be said for Zelda 1 and Metroid 1. Again, like hits for the time, but I do think mm. I imagine the game designers were, were savvy enough to be like, we're close here, but we're not there yet. And now yeah. we have this opportunity with technology advancing so quickly. Like we have this way to really do what we were trying to do the first time. Mm-hmm. But Castlevania is like, oh shit, like we just killed it. Like we just like, yeah. we just rocked. I guess the next one's like D&D. Oh, we try that. It's funny because I think I think about our experiences with the Game Boy Advance and the DS. And, you know, there are a lot of situations where you and I played games for both of those consoles where we were like, it's yeah. a miracle they got this running on this hardware, but that doesn't mean it's a good game. Castlevania is one of those games that I, I, I think it's a miracle they got that running on the original NES, but also it fucking rips. It's so yeah, it's so good. good. It's the best of all worlds. Yeah, it actually is. And, and just to be clear, because I mentioned earlier, I'm not a huge fan of Castlevania as a franchise. The original Castlevania is one of my favorites, though. Like, it is yeah. the one that I have gotten the furthest in and and love the most, I think, of all of them. I have three specifically that I want to talk about over the course of the episode. But that that very much is one of them. Like, the original Castlevania, I think, is so fun and feel like the length of the whip and stuff. Yes. Like, it feels like the perfection of getting Mario's jump right. Like the ways, the ways in which you eventually lock into and fully understand your tool set at any given time is great. And I think it has some of the best level design with the, like a lot of the monsters are kind of like appear in a lot of the other games, Mm -hmm. but I feel like in later entries, there's sort of this brute force mentality of, I'm just going to use whatever ability I have to get through. But in Castlevania one, it's like, it's just you, your whip and one sub weapon. And you have to be like very strategic about it. So Castlevania one, you haven't played it. I highly recommend it. I think it's a great time. It's very difficult. It has that kind of like, you know, uh, old school difficulty where you might even just take comfort in the fact that you'll never beat it. But it's it's a great experience. It's a good experience. And yeah. I would recommend now I didn't get I didn't have the liberty of doing this when I was younger, but play play it on a place where you can have save states. I think if you yeah, like, yeah. if you really intend on like making your way through the original Castlevania, definitely give yourself that at least. <laughs> it also is very campy. 
Like, yes. uh, you know, it, you just fight the mummy at one point. Like it's, it's just fully yeah. having a blast and the music is great. You're dressed exactly like Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> come on. So I feel like that was, they got it right. Simon's quest alternatively was trying to be an open world RPG with like towns that gave you cryptic hints on where to go next and weird items that you use in weird places to to progress. I know this sounds a lot like Elden Ring, uh, but it's Simon's Quest. And it's exactly like Elden Ring. It's exactly like Elden Ring. Uh, and I feel like that was the beginning of this sort of identity crisis, but also interest of Castlevania, where it's, okay, we've made this great action game, but we kind of have, even Castlevania 1 has like an interest in being an RPG. You know, there are like abilities, you, you find weapons, like you're not leveling up per se, but like you could see why someone's next idea would be an RPG mm-hmm. based on the, the vibe of Castlevania one. Yeah. So Simon's quest is, is kind of legendary for how esoteric it is. And they revert fully back to Castlevania one for Castlevania three, but you can play as other characters. Very fun. And then pretty much after that, it was just like action games, varying styles, but you get Super Castlevania 4 for the Super Nintendo, which feels like a Super Nintendo version of one. You know, it's a little bit more arcadey. It's louder. It's cool. I like Super Castlevania 4, but I kind of admire the restraint and design of the first one. Yeah. And then you have a bunch of games like that. So I feel like at that point it was like, okay, everyone else is like finding their Eureka moment on the Super Nintendo. And this feels more like a swan song. Like what's next mm. for Castlevania, you know? So that led to Symphony of the Night, which I think it really did successfully for the first time combine the RPG elements with the action game. So this came out three years after Super Metroid. The developers cite Zelda as the main influence. And you and I are like, I, 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 I trust that that's true, but there's no way on earth they didn't take some stuff from Super Metroid. Yeah. Like the map is the same. The save rooms are just a coffin instead of a tube. I'm not saying that in a way that like, I don't think it's bad because of that. Like, I think it's cool. It's just odd to me that like, I don't think this is a coincidence that does happen sometimes where like, there's just an idea out in the, in the cosmos. Yeah, the illusionist and the prestige coming out so close <laughs> together, for example. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no disrespect to the people who worked on this game. Cause I do, I do admire it greatly, but I just feel like that is, that has to be not true. Yeah. I've seen this as accepted mythology, uh, you know, just based on old interviews. It's like, yes, we'll take these exactly at face value that they say they weren't inspired by Metroid. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as soon as I read that and then went and back to play both games again, was like, no, these maps are literally the same down to the color palette. Like, <laughs> c- come on. So now this is my first time playing Symphony of the Night for this episode. Um, and cool. I am the bigger Castlevania fan of the two of us. But even then, like before doing the show, I'd only played Ari of Sorrow. That was like all I really knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually in college, I played the first one. Um, and loved it. Uh, and and then in doing the show, I've now played a bunch of them. Uh, and I specifically really love the DS era. Like yeah. doing the DS episode, that was my revelation was like, I feel like when all these came out, there there might have been like fatigue on like, OK, like Symphony of the Night set the standard. And these are like three more games like that. But all those games have a very unique take on what should come next from this formula. And I think that they honestly like. If I if if I just say like you know what Castlevania game do I recommend? I do after playing this, and I have a lot I want to admire about this game. But I would say that pretty much any game that came after this is better. I, I truly like this is a case where I just think like they set the formula really successfully here. 
but I think Ari of Sorrow and honestly Portrait of Ruin, that might be a hot take, but like, I think those two games are, are way easier for me to recommend um, yeah. than, than this one is. I think one of the interesting things about Symphony of the Night is specifically its its release on the PlayStation hardware uh, yeah. and the ways in which it utilizes that hardware and the ways in which it doesn't specifically. There are there are obviously areas that really could only exist because of the power that the PlayStation provided. There are certain areas that are so visually striking and so beautiful and gorgeous uh, and and make use of this, you know, really early for this but like a 2d 3d kind of vibe there's like a cathedral that i'm thinking of that i'm sure you're thinking of as well uh that that is so stunning to be in um and is this like i i think it helps in terms of grounding the player and having you as you're making your way through the castle understand like points of interest uh and and use them as kind of anchors for organizing the rest of the space in your head so you kind of know where you are but they really go all out in those visual anchors like in those moments where you walk into a room that's supposed to be the place that you're orienting yourself around they're always gorgeous and then things like when you go into a save room it's like this floating uh dodecahedron yeah Yeah. uh, that turns into a coffin i love it is really cool but like you know rudimentary 3d uh but really at the end of all this and especially going off of what you were just saying about the stuff that came later on the Game Boy Advance and the DS, they didn't need that. Like they actually, yeah. <laughs> you didn't need all that stuff. It's really great and aids this game in, in a majority of ways. But also simultaneously, I do feel like you could re- you could have removed all of that and they could have gotten this right way earlier. Uh, you know, it's yeah. it's not the actual technology that made symphony of the night happen it's an understanding of what worked about previous castlevania games and how to take it into the future and that could have happened at any point that they locked down these mechanics i think and i'm so with you that like once you get into aria of sorrow and the stuff on the ds like they're just taking what felt so great about symphony of the night and iterating on it and that's what's powerful about those games that's why those games are so good yeah it's just an interesting thing because i went to go play this game and was like why why was this on the playstation not the super nintendo for example like what yeah. what were they waiting for for making this and it, you know it was a lot of i think just needing to like generate the right ideas uh and, and and what console was prevalent at the time not you know not like we're waiting i do think that that's partially why this was a cult hit because i think it felt retro upon release even in mm-hmm. an era where like 97 that's like 3d was was new final fantasy yeah. 7 final was, fantasy 7 is out you know yeah. like ocarina of time so i think the idea that like the next step for castlevania was a 2d side scroller i think was a pretty big risk and i think yeah. it paid off long term because it proved that you can still do more with it um and that it is its own domain to explore and that 3d is not inherently the future but yeah it, it does it does have that that feeling of like the, the things that stand out are like you said the locations i mean the central clock room which i have more to say about that's not good. But that central <laughs> clock room is such an iconic location and it does yeah. really ground you. I think that is one area where I would say Symphony is amongst the best for Castlevania is just every area is so unique and so compelling. And it's so exciting to find a new place like finding the Coliseum and that music change. I was like, oh, I love this game. Yeah, I feel like my experience playing this game when it's at its best is just pure joy. And I'm literally saying, Ooh, when I find something new out yeah. loud, uh, it, and it has like <laughs> what I really appreciate about this game. And what I think Ari of sorrow, I think saw and doubled down on is the silliness of possibility. I think like the abilities you can get, like, you know, starting off, I, I will say this game has a very bad start, not even a slow start. It just starts bad. Oh, like, really? I just, I, I disagree. I love the opening. Really? I mean, yeah. I, I like it. Like, 
aesthetically and everything, but I think the lead up to the first boss just feels like a really big gate. Oh, oh, you mean like the opening hours? I, I, yes. I thought you were talking about like the opening opening, like playing as Richter, then running into the oh, castle. Oh, no, no, no. I love that. Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. like I mean, like the, the sort of prologue of actual gameplay. I agree with you on this. Because yeah. essentially it, it is it is just sort of point A to point B. And then you stumble across a boss that is weirdly like the most difficult boss in the game. Every <laughs> other boss I've steamrolled except for this one. And it, it really just relies on you figuring out that you can use your shield to block projectiles. But that's not like it's not like a souls boss. that's teaching you a, a fundamental mechanic that you'll use throughout. It just sort of feels like I just kind of lucked out or I figured out like something to exploit, you know, so mm-hmm. like it doesn't it doesn't set a great mood. But pretty much immediately after that, you're given a few more options and where you want to explore and you're finding more items. And I think the game does a pretty good job at signaling like what rooms are important so i think that clock tower or the clock room i think is set up really strongly where like there are two halls on both sides that are just full of clocks making a ticking sound and you meet maria who is an npc for the first time in that room Mm -hmm. and you also see her double jump up to the left yeah so you're like okay i can't double jump yet but i i that was pretty clear that eventually i can do that like i i I know enough to do that at least yeah um what you might not know is that the door to that area opens every other minute so if that is closed you have to know that you're supposed to wait in that room for a real minute for it to open up again and like Chances are you'll probably just see that happen. And like, that's not the most esoteric thing in the game. I do think it is kind of cool. And I, I, on paper, yes, the clocks are are visually implying that this is a room about timing and about waiting. But still, like the the physical act of having to actually just wait a minute when you finally do have the double jump is very silly. There are some similar things that happen in Super Metroid yeah. uh, that I think yeah. are handled a little bit better in terms of like in terms of telegraphing to the player what you're supposed to be doing in that moment. Because really what they're asking in this moment, in this room specifically, is like, I wonder if the clock really moves. And then literally waiting an entire minute to see if that's the case, which like, who's going to do that? Yeah, even with rooms with enemies in them, you are usually there for less than a minute. So it's a big ask. And, you know, it's not the most frustrating thing in the game. I'll get to that later. But uh, I do think, again, all the areas are so beautifully signaled. And I Mm -hmm. I did find that once I had the whole castle unlocked, I did have a strong knowledge of like, okay, yeah, I've explored there. I now have this ability. Like, I do think it does a good job. Like halfway through, you feel like you have much a much stronger understanding. And I'm someone that gets lost very easily. So I was impressed at how well the game, because it's essentially just a big circle with a middle room. So once you like see it and once you have the map, I felt much more comfortable like exploring and, and trying out like, Oh, I didn't go through this door or like, okay, I have to make note that like this door is blocked by an ability I don't have yet, but this door I just haven't gone through yet. Mm -hmm. I did enjoy that process. And honestly finding new items. I I think uh, what this game does is you have like your standard weapon, they all kind of just slash forward, though. And then you have a sub weapon, which are just items you find that will change like what the up attack thing does. Uh, I found I don't know if you found this, but I found that some sub weapons were significantly more helpful than others, 
which yes. made uh, some rooms enemies will just drop a sub weapon. And the jump scare of the game was losing the sub weapon I wanted that to keep. That was actually helpful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, there's a room full of harpies that drop like a hand power up. And I remember, I just screamed, like, I don't want the hand. Okay, this one, <laughs> I want the Bible. Um, yeah. So, like, it, I think what Aria of Sorrow does so brilliantly is it just sort of combines the sub weapon with, like, okay, when you kill monsters, there's an X chance you'll just inherit their attack. And what that does is it, it makes. There's no more decision making of like, oh, I dropped this item. I have to go back and get it before it disappears. You just have it all. Mm-hmm. And it also makes the game feel so fresh each time because like you're never going to really get the same powers every run of the game. It does have almost that roguelike feel to it where like, oh, you might get like I remember when I first played Aria of Sorrow, I got like a busted power really early on where Soma could turn and just say in and just charge through a room. <laughs> and I miss I miss that power in every other Castlevania game because I'm like, God, I wish I could do that right now up these yeah. cathedral stairs um, as Alucard, son of Dracula. But yeah, I mean, I think like getting spells, getting diff- like having two hands to equip things, eventually getting familiars, like a fairy that heals you or the ability to turn into a bat, all of that is awesome. Um, but I think... While it's fun and while it's always exciting to find new stuff, I do think this is where the game is lacking in a feeling of progression. There are two points of the game where I felt really stuck. And both of those times, the solution infuriated me. Mm. And it felt like it wasn't a lack of understanding I had, but just something completely esoteric and external from my experience. So the first one was... I had explored everywhere and a, a pet peeve of mine, and I shouldn't get mad at this because it's, it's, it's good to get, but one of my pet peeves is in any game, Zelda, Metroid, Castlevania, when I finally feel like I found the way forward and it's like a room full of power ups instead, it's like an optional, like, oh, cool. You like went the extra mile. Here's like a health bonus and a cloth cape. Yeah. And like there were at least six instances of this game where I thought I found the way forward and it was another power up room. And I'm like, I'm glad I'm really powerful now, but I'm so I'm getting so impatient. Did you do early on, like early on you beat the first boss and you've kind of made your way past the clock room and stuff. And and you're in, I think it's called the outer wall. Yeah. um, Is the part like all the way to the right. There's a really difficult enemy that's blocking a door who, when you kill him, like he, he doesn't respawn. Uh, and it's clear that he's like gating progress in some way. Did you do you know who I'm talking about? Do you know this night? Vaguely, but tell me your experience. He yeah. does a thing where he'll like swing his sword and he does like, you know, a bunch oh, of jabs yeah, yeah, and he, like, yeah, lights yeah. the ground on fire and stuff. I was like, this guy is clearly blocking the, the path forward and I just need to like make it through here and see what's going on. And it took me so many because I was under leveled and I didn't have enough health, whatever. I didn't have a good sub weapon and stuff. So it took me a really long time to like get the the um, motions down to be able to take him out. And when I finally did, I was so excited. I made my way through and it was literally an empty room. And then I was like, there's got to be a breakable wall in here or something like this has to be the path forward because I don't know where else it could be. And I went and broke the wall and it was literally just like a, a chicken it was like 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 the original Castlevania. Like I broke the wall and there was a chicken in there and I already had full health. And I was like, come on, come yeah. on, man. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of moments like that. And um, the, the two points that stumped me, one was I had to buy an item from the shop, from the library. Yeah. Dracula's librarian is a for-profit institution, I guess. But the library <laughs> is like the merchant and he sells something called the Jewel of Opening, which like once mm. you see it, you probably will buy it because it sounds important. But like, 
I was so let down that that was like, it wasn't like there was a mechanic I didn't understand or there was something I had to learn, but it was something I had to buy. And that's never done again. Like it's never like you yeah. never have to buy another important item. And then another one was I, <laughs> that clock room, which I've grown to despise, even though I praised it moments ago, that clock room, there's one area that opens every other minute. Then there's one area straight up that you clearly need to get the power of bat to fly up. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's an area to the right that stays closed. So my first instinct was maybe that's like, I got to wait longer for that. So I waited around longer. Nothing happened. Yeah. I just looked it up. You have to use the clock sub weapon to open that room. There's no, there's no shame in using a guide, but I was trying to play as much of this game without a guide just to see like Me how too. well it, it, it played. Um, and ov overall it's like, it's better than you think with, with some glowing moments of frustration, but this wall didn't open and I looked it up and it said, use the clock sub weapons. So now all of a sudden sub weapons are things that are just randomly dropped. So I had to just explore the whole castle <laughs> trying to find a clock avoiding yeah. when other sub weapons are dropped out of panic of replacing the thing I worked so hard to get. I go to the back to that room. I use the clock power the door opens. I go up. It's a cloth cape and a heart power up and I screamed and I almost gave up doing this show because of how <laughs> mad I was at that moment. I'm like, you, I can't believe I was following your lead. Symphony of the night. I saw this important clock room. I saw the door that was closed. I, I sought out the thematically important item and all I got was a cape that sucks. Like no matter by the point in the game in which you can access that area with the double jump, no one on earth is wearing a cloth cape. So why is it there? And the heart power up, which I appreciate, but like God. And then of course, like the area I had to go was like, it was the other side of a place I assumed was locked off. So like all this to say, this <laughs> is the, every Metroidvania game has a moment like this. I'm not saying this because mm -hmm. I think Symphony of the Night is bad. I think it's a great time. I would recommend it. I definitely would recommend other Castlevanias over it because I just think like as much as I love the atmosphere of this game and the mood and the campiness, like I'm really glad I played it as a fan of, of this series. But I, I think Aria of Sorrow, like I'm glad that was my entry point because I just think Aria of Sorrow is like, it's just better. It's just like the better Symphony of the Night, I think. Mm. Uh, at least I would say. Maybe maybe there are people out there who are know something about this game that I don't that have an appreciation for that. But all that to say, I think in talking about, you know, whether or not I think this is as great as my beloved Portrait of Ruin, I'll die on that hill, uh, or or the DS Castlevania games, I do think this game is so important and it's so cool to play because while Metroidvania, the, the term, a conversation that happens a lot, and a lot of the questions we got were like, do you think Castlevania gets too much credit for creating the genre? You know, it was obviously Super Metroid made the formula and Castlevania kind of did its own thing on it. And I don't, I think that there are plenty of games that have been clearly more influenced by Castlevania. I do think like Dark Souls is taking a lot from this game. Hollow Knight, uh, more directly Deedly and Wonder Labyrinth, the more recent Metroidvania yeah. game, I think is like one of the best not Castlevania games you could play. And so I think it's definitely had its own influence, but I think what, what Symphony of the Night has done that is even more important than the game itself is I think that it proved you could do more in this space. Yeah. It was the first game to see Super Metroid success and be like, you can play around in this space and we're going to prove that this is a genre. I don't think that was like a conscious statement of the game. I don't think they expected this to like for this term to exist, but I feel like even if Super Metroid is more responsible for more of the foundation, I don't think as many people would have had their their inspiration to do their own without Symphony of the Night. Because I think whether or not you love or hate this game, 
its existence, I think, inspired a lot of people to go in their own direction with it, which I think is really important. And it's why I admire this game so much in the games that came after. I think you could take any intellectual property and make a Metroidvania out of it. And I think a lot of that is due in part to the success of Symphony of the Night. I think you're totally right. Because, I mean, what Symphony of the Night is doing aesthetically and tonally is not new for Castlevania. You know, like it is it is taking the trappings that you know and love from this franchise and and grafting them onto what is slowly at, at the time in 1997 becoming like a set structure for what this genre of game is going to become. You know, Metroid being this kind of like Ridley Scott's alien inspired solitary experience, uh, Castlevania becoming what it is with skeletons and demons and Dracula, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, jumping forward 20, 30 years and you're getting things like the Ori games. Yeah. Right. Which are like. You know, these these glowing fantasy, um, almost like James Cameron's avatar adjacent <laughs> worlds that you get to explore um, and and things like Hollow Knight, which are like we're going to we're going to create an entire world from scratch and and really go all in on making sure that the tone and the vibe of this world feels lived in and real. And that's really that's really compelling, I think. Um, and, and I do I do credit Symphony of the Night with that specifically saying like, yes, we're not really, you know, we're not really changing the game at all. We're not really changing. Uh, we're, we're not we're not expanding what the genre is doing mechanically, but we can change what the genre is doing, I think, thematically. I think it's really interesting. I guess I'll talk a little bit about my experience playing. Cities yeah, please. I, the headline here is that I'm glad I kept beating my head against the wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it gets better as you go on. I do think it's like, at least for me, I enjoyed it. Like, especially once you have the bat power and can explore everything, there is payoff for powering through. Yeah. I, I've never done that in a Castlevania game. It's kind of, yeah. the, it's kind of the big thing for me is every time I play a Castlevania game, I eventually hit something that drives me away. Um, I think Ari of Sorrow, the, the biggest one, and I, I think I brought this up on the Game Boy Advance episode, but the biggest thing for me was I started the game ran around the castle immediately ran into a boss room after like 30 35 minutes of playing you know looking for the first save room and uh died to the boss and had to start the game over and didn't even get to save at all uh it was like cool great had to start, <laughs> had to start from scratch um things like that really drive me away and there are a lot of things in symphony of the night that were really trying to drive me away i had the exact same thing happen that in this game to be clear uh where i played through the whole opening and then made my way into the castle finally death took all my powers away and then I ran into a boss room and died and had to start from the beginning again. And that immediately was like, do I text Steven and tell him no? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I gave it a shot and I kept pushing through. Um, and I, I found that my experience with Symphony of the Night was very similar to what you were describing earlier, which is some for some reason, it was like a magnet pulling me back to playing it. Yes. Every time I thought I was done playing it and was like, I don't I, I just think I'm I, it's not going to be for me. I think Castlevania is not going to be for me. I would sit down and try again. I think the biggest thing, because you and I were texting each other kind of around the same time while we were both experiencing this is the first like major boss that you fight is this like gargoyle who's holding uh, another another enemy with its talons who like drops down and has a spear. Uh, so you're technically fighting two bosses simultaneously and they're kind of like working in tandem to kick your ass. And uh that boss is so fucking hard. That boss yeah, is so difficult. Yeah, it's harder than Dracula. Yeah, it's yeah, like... Absolutely wild. Because you haven't leveled up really at all. Because you haven't done anything in the game yet. Uh, you have one save room that's close to one of the most annoying enemies in the game also. <laughs> that you have to try and avoid. The poisonous on, thing that spins yeah, around. Yeah, that just, yeah that. it's so annoying. And then, you know, on your way to the boss room and then you get your ass kicked. 
And for some reason, like I died over and over and over again. And I, I felt like you where every time I died in this game, just to be clear, when you die in this game, the game over screen, right? Are you yes, bringing that there's up? a game yes. over screen that pops up, it fades <laughs> in. And then on the bottom in in text, that's barely legible because they're trying to do black letter font in pixel art. And it like you can barely read it. But it says, let us go out this evening for pleasure. The night is still young. And I I've gone back and forth on the implication of that sentence, because on one hand, I feel like they're saying I think I think maybe it was meant to be motivating. I think in some cases that little bit of text was supposed to say, hey, let us go out this evening for pleasure. Like you're playing this game for fun. Jump back into the game like the night is still young. You can keep coming back. You can keep getting your ass kicked by these bosses in this big room if you want. But just like give it another shot. And that's fun. But eventually that fades away and you're like, this game is fucking taunting me. This game is oh, like, oh yeah, that's what I got. This game is like, go outside and touch grass. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> Don't play this anymore. You suck at this. The night is still young. You can live an actual life outside of your house, not playing Symphony of the Night. It's worth noting that this message, let us go out this evening for pleasure. The night is still young is over what appears to be a desert with demonic bones in it. Yeah. And the, the castle in the in the foggy distance. Yes. Which, again, this is this is sort of the gothic. This is the gate punk version of the Wii Sports. Like, why don't you go outside for a bit or yes. whatever? Like, I, I love and hate it in equal measure. I, I think that it does add to the experience, um, but it can be infuriating. Here's the thing that I think is actually infuriating about it. Yes. Is it takes forever for that screen to pop up. You can't skip it. Yeah. You can't skip it. And when it goes <laughs> away, you're kicked back to the main menu. Like like Castlevania Symphony of the Night, press start, load your save, go back into the game. And whatever progress you had made is completely undone because you're literally just loading the last save that you had. That is bad. That is that really drove me up a wall like i i know that we're in the era pre-auto save i totally get it but what that meant was that anytime i did anything of note i needed to hike my way all the way back to the last save room that i knew existed and save to make sure i didn't lose my progress if i leveled up or if i got a new item or if i beat an enemy that you know i knew didn't respawn or something like the one i was talking about before anytime i did anything i would be like well back to the save room and then hike all the way back to wherever that was and do it again. And that was starting to grate on me. And I think it's like one of the failings of the game is like, I, I want the power fantasy of being able to explore. Like the, the castle is such a compelling place it's to be. It's a great place. Yeah. I think it's such an, it's, it's at least in all the previous Castlevania games. I should probably mention, I played a bunch of the other ones, like in the lead up to this, I even tried playing Rondo of blood, which I had a really hard time with, but it's interesting as like a level based Castlevania game goes. I think yeah. it's like maybe the best one of those, but it's still not for me. I think. Um, I know a lot of people like it anyway. I think I think it's the most interesting world that they had made uh, and, and I wanted to be able to explore it. And it was so it was so antagonistic in, in, in the way it was designed and in the enemies that are placed in certain places where I was oscillating frequently between just like being so frustrated and so angry at certain spots in the level. And simultaneously, I would every once in a while have this moment of like bliss and catharsis that like, yes. Of course the game is fucking with me on this level. Like, I think it's part of the camp of Castlevania that you can go into. There's one hallway I'm thinking of in particular where it's like a, a woman who's attached. She's like grafted to the top of a scorpion and like shoots fireballs at you. Oh, yes. And you fight one. You're like, that was pretty tough. I, I'm glad I figured out how to dodge the, the fireballs. And then there's a second one further down this hallway. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did two of them. And then there's a third one. 
further down the hallway. So you're now making your way down the hallway, fighting three enemies when you thought there was just one. And then you're expecting a fourth one. And what happens instead is there's a piranha plant that shoots out a ball that turns you into stone. I despise that plant. Yes. And you're like, oh, cool. I made it. I made my way through this. That was really tough. I'm on my last legs. I have four health left. But uh, thank God, you know, that that was the that was the fun bait and switch of this. And then there's a fucking other piranha plant that does the same thing. And that's the fifth and final enemy in this extremely long hallway and those moments are hilarious they are so frustrating but they're also so funny and seeing the comedy that that arises in enemy placement is not a thing i was expecting to find in castlevania at all No, it's great and and I, i will say that this game definitely stumbles in like First of all, there there are rooms that can warp you around, but you can't just yeah. choose where you want to warp. You have to use it each time yeah. and it will like rotate you clockwise, which they thankfully fix like immediately later. But even just like being OK, like you had to do a significant amount of like backtracking in a way that doesn't really feel super engaging. That being said, I think one thing that this game does really well that I think you see a lot in in the FromSoft stuff is like. When you have to backtrack through an area like that that used to give you a lot of trouble, but now you're a higher level, it feels great to just power through it. Yes. Like to have like your glowing cape that heals you and your fairy familiar and your giant sword that Alucard has to leap to hold mm-hmm. properly. Uh, it's awesome. Like that, that I always enjoy because it felt like I was making progress and not having to do the same thing over and over again, which like I think it takes a little bit too long to get to that point. I think a lot of people might... In, in a modern playthrough might feel too frustrated to like commit to it long enough to get that experience, but it, it is there. And I do think you're right that the, this game does have a twisted sense of humor for sure. This is also the folly of the opening, like the opening, yeah. opening of the game. Um, Cause it, it does a very cliched thing, but uh, the, the way the game starts is you're essentially doing the final fight of Rondo of blood. So it's Richter versus Dracula. And then after that, it cuts to Alucard running through the forest on his way to Dracula's castle. Um, and when you show up in Dracula's castle, you're like an unstoppable force. You're fighting all these enemies. You're hitting them all in one. You're, you're killing them all in one hit. Um, your sword is great. Your items are great. Everything's cool. And then you run into death and death takes away all your abilities. And, suddenly the game doesn't feel as good anymore. And and what is supposed to be this motivator, what is supposed to be this, like, I know where I can get to. Like, this this is where I'm going to end up eventually. I'm going to feel this good again one day. Ends up, at least for me, you know, I, 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 I tend to find that that trope in this kind of game can be a give or a take, can work for me in some places and doesn't work for me in others. I don't think it works for me as well here because it just makes the intro of the game feel like a slog because it's like, I just yeah. felt awesome mere minutes ago. Uh, and now, and now I'm, I'm trudging my way through mud. Yeah. It, it's, it's very hit or miss. And I think it really boils down to what the central mechanic of the game is supposed to be. So I think of Ori as an example of a game, specifically the second one momentum in that game feels incredible. Like mm-hmm. no matter, like from the very beginning, even when you have no abilities and you, you are gated out of some areas, just running around and jumping and climbing on stuff feels so good that like you have simultaneously the motivation to find more because it's always cool to get like a bow and arrow or something weird, but it's already fun to play. Whereas like Alucard with just punches is not a fun guy to inhabit, you know, (laughs) like he looks cool, but I feel like it's, it almost did too good of a job making you feel powerless. Where like, even in dark souls one, like they give you some moments of triumph in that initial beginning where like, 
the asylum demon is sort of the tutorial boss. And once you beat that, it does feel like you can kind of take on the world. And that's Mm -hmm. even before the game begins. I feel like this first boss was trying to be the asylum demon, but I didn't walk away from the fight learning anything or getting anything that fundamentally changed how I played. Yeah. I just sort of felt like, okay, I, I like mashed X enough to, to win. And yeah. and now I got it, but you know, it does get better after that point. And I think it's a great game. Like, I don't want this to come off. Like I'm, I'm bashing. Like this is by any stretch, like a game that we would have brought to the show on its own merits. And like, is definitely worth your time. I think what I always go into, you know, in, in long big series like these, like Castlevania, um, Zelda, Metroid, I feel like uh, often there is the game that, you know, sets the foundation and then there's iteration. And sometimes I'm really surprised to see like, you know what, like the game that started it all is just as good and absolutely worth your time. Mm. And then, and then there are cases where it's like, okay, this is, I can respect this deeply, but I miss Charlotte and Jonathan. I miss the mobility <laughs> options of Portrait of Ruin. I miss the chaos of the magical abilities of Aria of Sorrow. And yeah. I miss the weird RPG centric experience of Order of Ecclesia, you know, and like the beauty of that is that all these games are, are really focusing on different things. And I think all of these ideas are present in Symphony of the Night. So I think yes. like this is a best of all worlds, but master of none kind of situation where like you're getting all these ideas. And I think this is why this game is so often credited as a source of, of influence is because like there's so many ideas here and, you know, they're not all coming to the surface and they're not all executed perfectly, but they're there and they're inspiring because like, there are as many moments of this game make you frustrated, make you feel like you're being taunted, make you want to quit doing a show. Not really. I really didn't mean that. But also saying, ooh, out loud, getting the wonder of discovery and of, mm-hmm. you know, it, in its best moments, it feels like D&D where you're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. I can't wait to try this ability against that monster that killed me eight times. Like that is always fun. And that is something that I think this game does especially well and that I've seen, you know, influence other games more directly. Yeah. And and, and the ambition, th- there's a lot of ambition, I, I think, just kind of tucked away in this game. Like one of the early places that you can find is this is this little room that's hanging on the bottom of the castle that doesn't have anything yeah. in it except for a telescope. Uh, and you can look out the telescope and like see what honestly looks like uh, Charon on his boat, like, yes, paddling the river sticks. Uh, and like a fist jumps out in the distance and like that's all that happens. Then you move on. There's so many little moments like that that are so funny, like littered throughout the game. Chairs that you can just sit in for no reason and like nothing yes. really happens except like Alucard will just like kind of cross his legs and lean back for a second. Or like a ghost will show up and sit with you sometimes. Yeah, that, that's something they directly do in Bloodstained. And what I love about Bloodstained is that like they dial up the camp to 11 in that game. So like all those silly moments, that's like the whole experience mm. of Bloodstained like constantly, which is fun. The one I was going to shout out is the camp one which is the one where you go into um the like uh confession box oh yeah <laughs> yes and the like demon priest shows up and tries to kill alucard by like shoving a, a looney tunes number of swords and like spikes and stuff through the confession box into the spot that alucard's in he like jumps out and is like dear me it's <laughs> so funny uh, yeah, that stuff's awesome. It's so wild, like how many how many moments like that there are tucked away in this game that made me want to like you know that made me forcefully turn my Xbox off many times uh, and like need to stand up and walk away and play something else. But similarly, just uh, is is uh, riddled with moments of joy. It's um, absolutely it's really good. So I, I guess just to kind of wrap up my thought there, 
is like, I think by pushing through the part that was frustrating me or continuing to sit down and play it, even though I wasn't having the best time, I found a lot of stuff to love in Symphony of the Night. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I've now gone back and started checking out some of the other ones, which was always my hope with this episode was that I would start to have more of an appreciation for the franchise, especially the ones that came after Symphony of the Night based on my experience with this and am playing Aria of Sorrow now through the advanced oh, collection. Yeah. And it's so good. Now Now that I've, I, I kind of have level set my own frustrations with the franchise and know what I like and don't like about it and what I need to push through to find enjoyment, Aria of Sorrow is really, really working for me because it fixes a lot of the issues that I had with Symphony of the Night, I think. Uh, a lot of them by way of like, what powers are you equipping at what point is much nicer than what sub weapon do I have? And if, yeah. I, if I run into the wrong one, am I fucked? It's really nice in Aria of Sorrow to be like, I'm going to select... An item here. Um, another thing about Symphony of the Night that really rubbed me the wrong way was the uh, the like fighting game powers that you have. There are oh, couple, yeah. There are a couple things where yeah. you need to do like literally like quarter turns and stuff like you would in a Street Fighter game to be able to pull off certain moves that I I've never liked that in fighting games in the first place. So finding that in this game was like, oh, no, come on. I, I was falling in love with you, Symphony of the Night. And then you had to do this to me. Um, I just have such a hard time remembering that stuff and like pulling yeah. them off correctly. I, I, f I find them really difficult to do. There's a lot of that in Portrait of Ruin, but I think it works a little better because a lot of the things you unlock in that game are intrinsic to the characters. So like Charlotte will learn new spells and Jonathan will, they'll both learn more momentum options. And like, yeah, cool. I, I think that it's, it's cool to be like, okay, like holding down and B I'll slide for example. And yeah. then like, I feel like the more complicated ones are more just to like show off, uh, to add some flavor. So I'm glad they're not like mandatory, but I agree. It's a little bit of like, it's, it's asking a little too much in a game. That's like built to be pretty simple in combat. This is, I think the biggest contradiction of Castlevania for me. Um, and symphony of the night really highlighted it. I, I think more than any of the other ones is that I, I think the game is being created or the franchise maybe even as a whole is being created for disparate groups of people and not like one intended audience. The games seem to be built to be entry points and seem to be built to be like fun, campy, cool experiences where everyone's going to have this fun power fantasy, but simultaneously are so difficult and so punishing in the ways that they're difficult, like the game over screen, kicking you back to the main menu and making you lose all your progress and that process taking forever Things like that really, I think, hamper my ability to say, like, I think anyone would like Castlevania. I think you do need to be OK with the difficulty of retro games. And I think when when yeah. I think about the idea of retro games, I think about these moments that are filled with friction because of things that we just like didn't know as people who like made and enjoyed games at the time, like what the best practices should be for those kinds of experiences. And Castlevania always seems like it's pushing and pulling into those two different realms simultaneously and never quite lands on one. Um, which is why I've been having a more interesting time with Ari of Sorrow this time around, because I do feel like that one is pretty streamlined. I'm excited to go back and check out the DS ones again after this now as well, because I feel like that game does feel like an on ramp into Castlevania because it's smoothing over a lot of the edges of, of Symphony of the Night. Um, specifically in the opening hours, like that first boss fight that I died on way back when that I was talking about is much more fun when you have like gone to a save room first and then make your way over there and like can just kind of wipe them out. Like as soon as you learn the patterns, it's fine, um, which kind of speaks to the fun of like Dark Souls, which is our games that are notoriously difficult as well and being made for that audience specifically. Uh, but the Castlevania games, I don't feel like I don't feel like they telegraph that that's what they're going to be. But when you're playing them, that's what they are. 
uh, for yeah. better and for worse. And that's going to work so well for some people and not as well for others. And for me, I think reframing my relationship with the games and understanding what I'm getting myself into is intrinsic to my enjoyment of them. Um, totally. So now, now that I've experienced Symphony of the Night on the level that I have, going back into those other ones and saying, like, I know this is going to be frustrating. I'm going to, like, use safe states. I'm going to just kind of give myself whatever I need to to make my way through here is leading to much more enjoyable experiences. I'm so glad to hear that. Because, yeah, I mean, I think I always hoped that there would be a moment that clicked because I, I think that there's a lot in these games that I, I was confident you would really like. Yeah. And I think Aria of Sorrow, I the the difficulty there is almost the opposite. Like the, the most frustrating moments for me in Symphony of the Night was like when progression was like an item that I had to buy or like something really that I would never have found um, without looking it up on GameFAQ. Aria of Sorrow is the opposite. We're like, you can go to most places in that castle, but by extension of that, it's like, okay, it's it's very similar to like Dragon's Dogma where like early on in that game, you could like sail to an island with like end game monsters. And the game is very comfortable letting you find out that that's a bad idea. Yeah. But that might be frustrating to experience. But I think once you have an understanding of, okay, I can get these different enemy powers and I can like go anywhere and explore. I do think like exploring and discovery are much more central in Aria of Sorrow. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's just, I, I, I don't want this to be a backhanded compliment, but playing Symphony of the Night, even as a fan of, of this series, has also magnified my appreciation for Aria of Sorrow. Uh, indirectly just because of what that game is doing and what a brilliant follow-up it is I I do feel like they really learned so many lessons from those two games and the DS ones I mean I I I feel like Portrait of Ruin is like uh it's well regarded but I I I definitely am alone in like loving that one the most out of those three DS ones because like if you like Aria you're gonna like Dawn of Sorrow and if you like um, Order of Ecclesia is, is also, I think, a little divisive because it's so it's so demanding and it's so different. And it's like framing mm-hmm. of, of being more of an RPG and being kind of Simon's Quest. But let's do it right this time. Uh, but Portrait of Ruin, I just think at that point in Castlevania, there were also kind of forks in the road. And I like the fork in the road that's like dial up the camp dial up how it feels to get around the castle. I think that's something that's big for me is like just navigating the area in Portrait of Ruin is so much more enjoyable. Yeah. And I think having it be like the castle is the hub world. And then there are these paintings that lead to smaller, like bite-sized worlds. I just feel like the, the sense of progression in Portrait of Ruin is so much easier. And you also fight death and Dracula as a duo, which is like, the best Castlevania moment of all time. So <laughs> Portrait of Ruin gets slept on. So I'm trying to say, but anyway, I, I do think Symphony of the Night is like, maybe not the one to start with, but I do think weirdly unlocks the rest of them. It's like the secret ingredient to like appreciating the whole series. Like you said, I think you're right. I'm looking at my notes to see if there's anything else that I want to talk about from Symphony of the Night. Uh, one of the only things that I wrote down that we didn't talk about was that uh, you can uh, smash an urn with your sword and a little hot dog will come out and you can eat the hot dog. <laughs> And the other thing is that, uh, oh, yeah, when you're done with the game, quote unquote, uh, there's another entire castle called the Inverted Castle on the bottom of the first castle. That's uh, right. Which is um, it's a lot. Yeah, it's (laughs) this. This also starts. So there's a trend in Castlevania games that's directly echoed in Bloodstained as well of like a fake out ending. So like. You can go, the final boss of uh, Symphony of the Night is Richter, but he's clearly possessed by something. Like, he's not the Richter we know and love. Um, and if you, like, fight him and kill him, the game just sort of ends on kind of an anticlimactic note. But if you do a little bit more, you discover that, like, oh, okay, I have to fight the the spear that's possessing him. And then that triggers this 
other castles showing up, which like is cool. And I think there are games that have done that like better. I think the the influence for the upside down parallel castle uh, is actually more Zelda that the yes. whole Twilight world Definitely. and everything. But I think like even though this game is only like 10 hours, it, it feels longer. Yeah. And by the time that shows up, I just like. It's cool that at that point you have all the um, mobility options, like flying around as a bat is cool and all mm-hmm. that. But I, I, I feel like it, it's a little bit overkill, like you said. Visually speaking, I felt like my eyes couldn't parse what I was looking at <laughs> in, the, in the inverted castle most yeah. of the time I was trying to traverse it. Uh, that was that was the big frustration point for me was like, I love the idea and I yeah. don't love the execution. Um, yeah, that, I, th- I think exactly it's so right. cool when it shows up was like a, a real holy shit moment. It's like one of the one of the few like holy shit moments in that game, I think. But making my way, you know, up a down staircase and vice versa was like, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I wish I wish I could do something to fix this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even even um, honest and, uh, you know, backseat game designing. But even if like you could go back to the clock room and like lit, invert the castle again, you know, and mm. kind of make your way through it up and down. Um, there's actually a part in Elden Ring that lets you do that. There's I, I don't want to say too much, but there is a there is an area in Elden Ring where if you put a statue in the right place, it'll flip an entire uh, tower uh, and you get to explore it forwards and backwards, which is very cool. And uh, I, I found myself wishing that I had that kind of experience in this. Yeah, there's also a dungeon in Majora's Mask, which I wonder if full circle this influence because... Mm. Uh, Stone Tower and Majora's Mask is all about flipping it in different directions um, and like seeing what's on the roof and deciding, you know, okay, if that's on the floor, I can I can hit the switch and all that. Um, Yeah. See, I definitely think like this moment definitely stuck with people. Like, I think there are other Metroidvanias that do this kind of like if you do all the secrets, there's like a whole other world to explore. Mm. But I think it was another example of like cool idea, but maybe try it again. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful night. Let's go out for pleasure, you know? Yeah, totally. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's I, I think, uh, you know, I know this this section might come off as kind of a mixed bag, but I think the game is a mixed bag. I think we could be yeah. frank and say the game is a mixed bag. I yeah. think it can be a masterpiece and also flawed simultaneously. That's it, very it's, true. It's set in motion a lot of the things that we love about the genre, but also didn't nail it all because it was 1997 and the PlayStation one. <laughs> and I think it's a testament again, like that jump to Aria is like. I think they knew the issues as well. You know, the the leap over Castlevania 64 to Aria, to be clear. <laughs> That's right. I'm forgetting about all the the there's a whole other <laughs> fork in the road of, of the sure 3D is. ones. And then there's uh, Lords of Shadow, which was like a weird God of War type thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of there's a lot of forks in the road of Castlevania. There Dracula's sure Castle manifests every so often yeah. by the hands of man. Um, so. <laughs> Buckle up, baby. I do feel like Castlevania 64 is like the inverted castle of Castlevania as a genre. We're going to play that one October and like love it and then have to redo all of this it's over again. So I fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, what we're going to love, love the, the bike, uh, the skeletons on the motorcycles. Uh, I love my my sleeveless denim vest. The other fork in the road, which might just be like if you start digging and go underground, is the uh, fighting game Judgment. Do you remember that one on the Wii? No. <laughs> There is a Castlevania. Oh, I'm so happy I got to tell this to you. There is a Google it. There is a Castlevania fighting game for the Wii called Judgment. And all the characters are designed by the artist who created Death Note. And they're like dramatically Death Note. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) This is stunning. (laughs) Alucard's in it. I was going to say my favorite thing is that Alucard looks 
pretty much exactly the same. <laughs> no, no changes at all. Yeah. <laughs> he was already fairly death note appropriate, yeah. but like Simon totally different. It was just essentially like, what if, which I kind of like in theory, but yeah, that was a, a, a bizarre entry in Castlevania's life. This Probably is it's unreal. Not bad, but I've never played it. Wow. Castlevania Judgment, uh, upcoming bonus. Uh, <laughs> you want to uh, you want to take a break and come back and talk about Super Metroid? Yeah, the night is young. Let's go out for pleasure. Absolutely. See you soon. Talk to you later. We're back in the show, Hello. out of Dracula's castle and in to space. Yes, exactly. With the <laughs> 1994 uh, Super Nintendo video game, Super Metroid. Planet Zebes. Here we come. Is it Zebes or Zebus? Honestly, a billion different versions of it in my head. Uh, Zebus, it could be. Zebes, it could be. Zebes, as you were just saying. Uh, Zebs. I don't know. Zebus sounds the most like sci-fi to me yeah the planet zebes has a nice ring to it yeah that makes this game campy in a way planet zebes is like is like a wawa space station you know <laughs> welcome to zebes the usual yeah you know me hey, you got any ice <laughs> beans here <laughs> welcome to zebes what do you want <laughs> we got gronk nuts on sale <laughs> you know me i hate asteroids not the game the things um <laughs> Anyway, Super Metroid, uh, this I went into. So you said that like you shared your history yeah. with the series and that you had played this. But I think for both of us, like largely a blind spot in our Metroid journey. And I went into this experience kind of expecting it to be akin to Link to the Past. So this might be a hot take. I love Link to the Past. I admire it deeply. But similar to Symphony of the Night, I do feel like I prefer the iterations post Link to the past. Like I, I am in awe that that game established kind of what we expect and know of Zelda. But if you ask me, do I want to play Link to the Past or do I even want to play Link's Awakening? You know, like I feel like pretty much every game after Link to the Past, I would prefer mm. in some way. And maybe that will change. Maybe it just has to find me in the right mood. But like usually I'm like, okay, I really like this, but I'd rather be playing X, Y, or Z top down Zelda. Yeah. And I kind of expected that to be like, my Super Metroid take, like I expected to play this game, be like, it's really cool, really impressive, set the foundation, but I like fusion more, like dread more. Uh, and what I found is that Super Metroid is just in its best moments, like it really feels like it came from the future. I feel like <laughs> this game, I, I get the reverence for it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that it's still kind of a tie because I feel like the Metroid hits in my head, if we want to say like dread, fusion and Super Metroid, I would place on the top mm. i feel like they're all going after very different things like fusion is a horror game i feel like that is like the best way to kind of frame it in terms of the structure and obviously that's also kind of a vague genre but i feel like it's you like you said it's a tone forward it is taking what is usually uh at the subtext of a metro game and putting it in the spotlight yeah i really admire fusion for its like atmosphere it's it's actually made me afraid to explore which is like not something I felt in any any other Metroidvania game. Mm. Like actually feeling that uneasy, really powerful. And I love the boss fights. I love the music. Yeah. Ridley with a human scream, like A plus. Fusion, <laughs> fusion, 
Fusion, if you like, if you force me to choose, I would say it's still Fusion. Mm. Um, and I think that was also because it was my first one. So like it kind of got me into the series. Dread just plays so well. Like the boss fights of Dread, the combat in Dread, even the exploration. I know some people think it might be too linear. I don't really feel that way because again, I, I would much rather it be more guided than feel completely stumped. And that's very subjective, but like I never felt in Dread that I was being patronized. Which like I I also don't like when a game makes it way too obvious. Like mm. there are some later Zeldas that might be a little bit too clear about like where to go next or like how to solve a puzzle or whatever. Yeah. But I didn't feel that way in Dread. I, I just felt like I was kind of organically figuring things out by exploring. And I felt like in Dread, like I think one critique when that game first came out was like, oh, it's too it's too railroaded, like <laughs> uh whatever. And then everyone quickly realized like everyone thought what was the critical path was a different way yeah. to the point where like so the game is so confident that you can do things in a different order that there's a whole unique moment in the Kraid boss fight where if you get the bombs earlier, there's a whole thing that plays out with that. So like yeah. dread is awesome. And I think like if I had to recommend like, you know, what, what is like the game to play? Like it would probably be dread. Cause I feel like super Metroid and fusion are weirdly more kind of niche in in the series as a whole yeah the the real frustrating part of this that that uh i i hate really still is that the only two that you can legally play right now are <laughs> super metroid and Tread. that's really the only option you have are those yeah. two games i guess the, the original is on the nes the Classic, original is right? on the nes uh Classic, okay so yes. it's those three it's the original metroid <laughs> Super Metroid or Dread are your three options at the moment. Yeah, I really, I really am baffled that like, I feel like Fusion, there was the lead up because Dread is in many ways. I mean, it is a sequel to Fusion. Yeah. But even in its marketing, it was going for like a creepier atmosphere, being stalked by those robots, kind of similar to SAX and Fusion. Yeah. yeah. Ironically, the robots were like my least favorite part of Dread. Like, that's like the reason why I don't, mm. I can't confidently say Dread is like the best because taking out the robots just felt like very repetitive and it didn't have the like everything with SAX and fusion is incredible. Yeah. It's there's a missed such opportunity a, with the robots. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's not, it doesn't hold it back, but like you said, it's a missed opportunity, but I, I really hope that they one day pour at least the game boy advance ones to, to the switch. Cause like, yeah, I don't know. It just, it just feels like a missed opportunity, but anyway, super Metroid, I feel like also it doesn't have as rough of a start as simply the night, but I think for the first, like, hour or two which i actually played the opening of this game several times so i wasn't sure where i wanted to play it hmm. i started it on the switch and then i actually started it on the miu mini and then i went back to the switch and yeah. each time i started over so i didn't progress mm -hmm. a save file anywhere so i played the beginning many times and it's definitely like i think it's a really good opening but i think if you're if you don't know the rest of the game it could feel a little bit like okay what's all the fuss about like why do people say that this is like the way to do metroid the way to do a metroidvania like it feels good and it looks great and it the music and the atmosphere is like immediately what you hope and dream of for a metroid game but you know it was like okay like i i kind of i'm doing the things that i usually do you know i'm getting the missile it's a slow burn I will say that because originally I was like, okay, I can definitely confidently speak to enjoying this, but um, I don't feel the way I did with Fusion, where Fusion just like shocked me and terrified me and inspired me and was telling a really cool story about like, I think that game is dealing with the trauma Sam Samus has felt and mm -hmm. something about, you know, we mentioned how in Symphony of the Night, it begins with death stealing all of Alucard's powers 
and you're starting over. Fusion's similar, but adding to that, you are stalked by your former self. Like you are being hunted by a clone that has all your powers. And that is such a cool idea for just like anything. But like applying that to a Metroidvania where like there are so many moments of fusion where you'll go into a room and then come back and a part like the the exit that you remembered that you're like, okay, now that I have this, I can go back there. SAX has blown it up. And like so many moments like that, it felt it made the world feel really alive. You know, I think there is something a little bit static about the castle in Symphony of the Night where it's like Alucard is progressing, but everything else is kind of in this cyclical state of respawning. Mm. And Fusion just feels really alive. And honestly, so does Super Metroid. Yeah. Because the moment the moment that I felt like, oh, I kind of I'm getting it was when there's a moment where you have to backtrack. And when you go back to a room, it's now full of monsters who are scaling the wall. And like it's oh, a you're very, talking, like, right at the top. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah, like. Yeah. Wait, can, yeah, I, can I level set this for please, a second? Because I, I love do. I love the way this game opens. So you yeah. end up going on to this, uh, essentially the place where Metroid 1 ended. Uh, so you're like returning to the scene of the crime, essentially, and you're making your way down this big, long corridor and through this room, which is where the final boss fight against Mother Brain happened, and into a room where there's just a little test tube with the last Metroid, which if you've played Metroid 2, um, it is the last Metroid from Metroid 2, the one that like imprinted on Samus at the end of that game. There is a confusing bit, just to, I guess, go back to your your bit about like the trope of losing all your powers at the beginning. This game completely ignores the fact that Samus like should have a bunch of extra powers, because this is like literally directly at the end of Metroid 2. Yeah. Um, um, it just doesn't acknowledge it or anything. I was actually kind of surprised because I remembered that in this game because it's such like a it's such a trope of this genre that like, oh, of course, Super Metroid would have it as well, but like doesn't at all, which I thought was very funny. But anyway, you go into this room with the last Metroid um, and you go to interact with it because you think like, oh, I guess I pick this up and bring this out is what I'm supposed to do. And some glowing eyes shine through the dark and Ridley shows up and it's like your first boss fight immediately. It feels so much to me in a way like the final fantasy team learned from this in some way, shape or form, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I have to imagine they played this and were like, this is how you start a fucking video game because the final fantasy seven yeah. opening, starting with like jumping off the train, doing the whole like reverse heist to blow up a reactor and mm-hmm. like, prove that you're an eco-terrorist etc it's this like really bombastic start and this game opening with this kind of like slow crawl through a previous area that you may or may not remember if you've played the previous games but regardless even if you haven't you know that something big happened here at one point it feels derelict but it feels like it was interacted with in some way ending with you fight this boss who is a recurring boss like oh my god ridley's back holy shit ridley kind of kicks your ass but you make it out by the skin of your teeth but it's very clear immediately that ridley has set the space station to explode and then there's a timer that starts going down and as soon as you leave that room is when it's covered in space pirates so this room that was previously empty was clear they're all just hiding in the back just like ridley was like waiting for you to fall into their traps so they could trap you here and you would blow up on the spaceship and uh, you need to fight your way out and like what a cool opening it is yeah to have for a game that ends up being mostly about solitude and and like the vibe of emptiness, you know, and like really making you feel like lonely and solitary opening with this like you're surrounded by people and that's also a nightmare uh, is really interesting. Yeah, I think it's if if fusion is about reckoning with trauma and and learning that like it's actually through adversity that Samus has become so strong and like mm. kind of. There is a moment of like acceptance near the end that plays out really wonderfully. But 
in this game, it's like it's just sort of following a defeat of of the second. Yeah. You know, it's it's opening with a loss, and then I think that journey of like can Samus win again? You know, like what is going on in her head is largely done by the player, but it's inspired by the mood. Like you said, it's a very solitary experience. And what I would say the moment that I was like, Oh yeah, this is a masterpiece was, you know, you, you land on planet Zebes, you go down, you explore. I love the, the solitary elevator. I, that's infusion where you get the narration, but here you just sort of get like a still shot of Samus. And actually there's another moment. Like there are so many moments like, when the pirates show up on the wall, where like you'll go back to places and there will be like a little bit of a difference. Yeah, this bit is awesome. The one that you're uh, thinking about to get to. Yeah, but basically the moment I fell in love with this game and it wasn't just like, here's where it all started, but like this is a really special game that everyone should play is you have, at this point, you're about like a third of the way through the game. Oh, you've okay. you've you've acquired enough abilities that like you've made your way through at least two and there's there's a lot of different paths of progression but at this point you've made your way through at least like two main areas underground and the game begins when you get off your ship similar to the first metroid if you go right you can't go that way yet so you have to go left and then down but there's a point kind of also similar to the moment in dark souls one when you like open the gate and you're back at the firelink shrine there's a moment where you end up going back to the surface and you come back from the way that was previously inaccessible Mm -hmm. and the music is different the music is suddenly like much more hopeful and much more triumphant and the game doesn't like stop samus doesn't give the camera like a thumbs up (laughs) it's just for you and the game silently i guess not silently because it's music but the game like subtly acknowledging that you've come a really long way and you should just like take a moment to recognize Mm. that is so cool and i think this is the fundamental difference if we're comparing the two between progression in metroid and progression in symphony of the night at the very least is that symphony of the night is largely about items and trinkets and using what you have to progress whereas super metroid there's a moment that kind of illuminated this the first boss fight or i guess probably the first boss fight if there's not some insane sequence breaking but is this weird plant that kind of just like Mm -hmm. bobs its head and shoots spores out spores out yeah and there's boss music playing and you defeat it and it dies but the boss music doesn't stop (laughs) which might feel weird at first but to me that implied you killed this creature but your main obstacle is this place Mm mm-hmm the music is essentially telling you like there's still plenty of danger ahead. So, and you know, the, the brief moment, Metro games all have really wonderful use of sound uh, to tell you that you've progressed. I mean, when you find an item, you get that like really nice soothing. Oh, thank God melody. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the safe rooms, similar to resident evil, the safe rooms have a nicer melody, but they're like kind of uneasy. You know, there's that ambient beeping that's become very iconic, so to have that like Superman theme play when you get back to the surface, it like it it really fucked me up. It was like weirdly emotional for a game that's like got not like no dialogue. Yeah, <laughs> it's and I think that's just the power of the atmospheric storytelling and like the mm. fact that you can find your way to that exact point in multiple ways and you can appreciate that moment like organic to your playthrough. I think speaks volumes to the design of this game in general. Mm. Yeah, I. I love this game. Um, <laughs> I don't even That's I don't awesome. even know where to begin. Honestly, I, I think I, I I think you uh, you shared a lot of really wonderful sentiments. I'm even trying to figure out what to drill down on. But I, I think 
this game does feel kind of going back to what we were talking about, I, I think, in an earlier segment here. It does feel like the culmination of the first two games. It feels like as you're making your way through, you're like, not only did they get it right in terms of gameplay and mechanics, but they also got it right in terms of how they're trying to elicit the vibe that they're trying to instill in the player. Um, the, the moment that always sticks with me whenever I start this game is after that whole big like escape sequence I was talking about. When you first land on the planet, get out of your ship, go left instead of right, as you were talking about. Just like in the first game, again, you go down the elevator and you have to go left again to get the morph ball. Um, and it's exactly the same as it was in Metroid 1. The big, huge difference is that there's this like robotic eye that shoots out of the wall and is scanning you. And it doesn't do anything and you can't shoot it or interact with it in any way. But it's this like really clear indicator that things are different and that there's somebody watching you um, and, and that you're not alone here. And that by itself is scary. Um, you know, it's not just about the like little monsters with the spikes and, and the teeth and the wings and stuff. But there's like an actual intelligent presence watching you. Um, is really frightening, which then leads you into, I think it's the the second upgrade you get uh, when you find the first Chozo statue uh, that's sitting on the ground and it gets up. Yeah. is so scary. That and, is terrifying. And I yeah. always forget about it whenever I play this game because I always think about the opening Ridley moment and, I, and, and the morph ball scanning and stuff. I always forget that that Chozo statue is going to get up. It's going to be a boss fight. I'm never prepared for it and I always die the first time. I'm amazed that Zelda hasn't just copied that moment and made like a treasure chest a mimic or something. You yeah. know, like that'd be so fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I think too, like it's worth pointing out that like there are a couple moments of this game that are very esoteric. Well, you know, I'm sure yeah. we'll bring them up but honestly it's pretty amazing how tight the design is there are multiple instances especially when you get a new power where you need to use that power before you can leave the room yeah the game really wants to make sure you understand what the function of each new ability is so that you feel inspired to use it in a way that you know whenever you get a new item in metroid the way you play fundamentally changes. Mm -hmm. And I think that creates the sense of whenever you beat a boss or find a new area or progress, it feels like you did it. You know, like yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun to be had with extrinsic elements. Like I think the strength of Castlevania is sort of like the maximalist nonsense of items and abilities. Like I mm. love that. And that's what makes it fun, but it can, if it's tied to progression, me buying a jewel of opening versus me unlocking the ice beam and seeing the creatures and then freezing them and jumping on them to yeah. get out. Yeah. That feels much, even if it's, even if it's not entirely my doing, even if the game is clearly telling me that that's what I'm supposed to be doing visually, it feels like I put the pieces together and not just me buying a key. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge distinction between, and like, Sophie the Night has that too. You know, you turn to a bat, you remember the areas where you couldn't do and you fly there and it's fun and it's exciting. And then you inevitably get a cloth cape and a health power up, but that's besides the point. Um, it, there are moments like that in, in Sophie the Night as well, but I think Metroid, it's like the guiding force of the game is yeah. this feeling that you as a player are, are, unraveling this world as Samus is growing more powerful. They're like one to one mm. and it's really hard to do that. And I think this game, I, I, I think that's why I would put it on the pedestal of best Metro games. Cause I feel like that is the best execution of this, you know, sort of like trusting the player enough and also giving Samus enough inherent abilities to make traversal easier, like getting more health upgrades, 
all that stuff is really great. I know I just complain about finding health upgrades, but for whatever reason in this game, it's usually because they're hidden behind like a unbreak, like a breakable wall or something where I'm like, oh, cool. Another missile thing. Not like I thought this is the way to go. And I got a missile, you know, mm, that's interesting. I, yeah, I, I think there's a give and take. And I think it maybe just depends on where you're at, like where yeah. your headspace is at when you get there, because I do know that that's a thing that chafes a lot of people with this game. And, and I totally get that. I think. In comparison to a game like Zero Mission or the original Metroid, um, the way this game hides objects behind breakable walls, I think, is a lot better than at least that game, like that original one, whether the remake or not. There are a lot more moments of like, I have no idea how I was supposed to realize at any point that I was supposed to morph ball bomb this one block to progress. Uh, Super Metroid, I think, is a lot better about it, but it's still there. It's interesting because I feel like there's such a there's such like a tug of war here. Um, just to link it back to a, 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 a lingering thread from the Symphony of the Night conversation, uh, talking about the clock room and how the clock room takes a long, you know, you, you, in what world are you going to sit there for a minute and wait for it to open? Or in what world are you going to realize that you need to bring the clock power up there, et cetera, et cetera, without like a guide or somebody else to kind of like nudge you in that direction? Super Metroid has moments like that that are much better telegraphed. They're, they're telegraphed in ways that make a lot more sense. I think the biggest shining example of this is uh there's one bridge that you can go across that's like clearly blown up and it's like right after you get the super bombs and it becomes clear the next time you see a bridge like that that like oh i know that these explode because i just walked through one that was blown up maybe i should try to use my new super bomb that i unlocked recently and see if that works and it does and it blows up that bridge and that's how you progress in that area and that's really cool like that's a moment where they've literally visually shown you how to move past uh, a block in your way instead of just like assuming that maybe you'll wait for an entire minute in that <laughs> clock room. Um, so there are moments of brilliance like that in Super Metroid. And then there are the moments where, yes, you will have to blow up one specific block with a morph ball that's not telegraphed in any way, shape or form. And the only thing you're going to get on the other end of that is a missile upgrade, which is great and appreciated. Yeah. But sometimes you are just looking to move past that and you're like, fuck. I messaged you when there's that one room that has like weird bubbles for walls where I actually found the hidden exit yes. accidentally and I was still mad even though I found it instantly I was like <laughs> I can't believe I just found that by like shooting in a corner by accident yeah. you know it's so annoying it can be really annoying yeah yeah and it's it's definitely there but I don't think it's quite as it's not enough to be the mixed bag that Symphony is and it, yeah to, to its credit Symphony of Night is is trying to do a lot at once yeah and I think it really does stick the landing whereas Super Metroid I think is a little bit more focused and minimalist in its execution you know yeah. like I think that you largely even though you get all these abilities they're usually amplifications of what you already have Mm -hmm. Like, I think the the biggest jump is like when you get the grappling hook and that's like still tied to your arm. I think it's also such a brilliant choice. And this is in Metroid one credit or credits due, but having to shoot to open doors, I think automatically tells the player like often to progress. You'll just have to shoot stuff. Yeah. You know, and like another thing too, like one of the first doors you find, uh, like one of the first like obstacles is like you learn that pink doors are opened by missiles, but specifically five of them. Yeah. And I think there's enough visual there. Where like when you shoot it with a missile, you can tell it like did something and maybe you just have to do a few more. Thankfully, I, I figured that out fairly early. Uh, I know we have a question. I, I wrote down a bunch of questions for our next section and someone mentioned that as like, did that stump you? Because that's apparently that's said in the manual. And like, oh, really? I, yeah, I do wonder. Like, I did not know that the first time I played this game, to be clear. Yeah, I, that I remember that driving me up a wall once I learned that eventually. Yeah, I feel like it, it's definitely helped me experience I do think while I'd highly recommend Super Metroid, I think it's like a must play. 
I do think it helps to have played other Metroids before. Mm. <laughs> like, I think having this sort of a general vocabulary for Metroid has helped me avoid issues like that, where it's, okay, I know that I might have to use more than one missile here. Um, I don't think that's, like, done in fusion or zero mission but like for whatever reason i just knew to try everything <laughs> yeah so yeah but i i really love this game i love the boss fights that that was a big surprise it's like mm. i think the bosses are a lot of fun they're great they're, they're also all really unique so like you have like stuff like the chozo statue coming to life which is like what the fuck uh it's like a that that feels like a very fusion boss mm. and then you have stuff like Kraid, where it's like this larger than life you know the screen can't contain him in one you know, you have to climb up to like see his head and shoot missiles into yeah. it. There's stuff flying at you, but like, there's a rhythm to that fight that feel like okay, I could I can shoot these things to break them to give me missiles to do that. And then you have fights like the weird creature underground that's also kind of a jump scare that you just have to like. He doesn't have health, which took me. I I I wasted a lot of missiles the first time mm. just trying to like kill him but what you have to do is you have to get him to walk backwards into a pool of lava yeah um i felt kind of mean i I didn't sense true hostility he just seemed confused i know i know what you mean there is it's one of the weird boss fights or one of the weird boss designs that like strangely is kind of cute despite being (laughs) grotesque so you do feel kind of bad watching literally its skin melt off its bones in the lava yeah it's a very terminator to death yeah and it comes it comes back as the skeleton just like psych you out and then dies again yeah um, but the bosses are really cool and I like, I really love that eerie room in the beginning that shows all four of the main bosses in like a group pose. Great. Yeah. It's like Ginyu squad of space pirates. <laughs> and if you go back, you can see like, okay, like once you beat Kray and Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so cool. I, I think what I also think is interesting and to compare it to the, like, it's a wonderful night to go outside game over screen. <laughs> whenever I lost in super Metroid, like whenever I either died or turned the game off, I always felt armed with what to do next. Yeah. Even if it wasn't the right idea, I always went back being like, okay, try that. I want to try something else. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is very much akin to the first Zelda where in that game, you're going to die a lot, but weirdly enough, it's kind of forgiving in that way. Like when you die in Zelda one, you still have all your stuff. You just start in that point in the map. So like you can be like, okay, I'm just going to go in a different direction and see what that does. Mm. And I feel like Super Metroid is kind of similar. It's okay. I tried to do that. Maybe I'm just going to turn it off and like go in a different direction. And I I found that to be, it's a much more pleasant experience uh, than, than the taunting nature of of the game over screen. Something else that I think is brilliant about Super Metroid and it brings to mind uh, a recent game, uh, a wonderful game, Tunic, which Tunic is all about, essentially, you're this cute little fox who is in a game that feels sort of top-down Zelda-y and also has, like, Souls elements. But the whole conceit of that game is that not nothing is told to you, like, how to play and what to do. It all has to be discovered organically. Yes, and I was going to ask you about this. I was, yeah, I was curious how you felt about this. You, uh, you also discover, as you play Tunic, you find instruction manual pages that will say, like, they won't spell it out. Like, it's not in a language that exists, but it will be like, it will show the fox doing an action. And you'll learn like, oh, my God, I could do that. And you could do that. You could do that the whole time. You just didn't know. Right. Uh, so in that game, a lot of the joy is discovering either organically that options exist or getting those instruction pages and saying like, Oh, like I can do this now or I can, the the game is fundamentally different now. Yeah. Really cool. Super Metroid did it first, baby. In the mid nineties, there are these weird creatures, animal friends that you find (laughs) in planet Zebes or Zebes. Uh, and essentially they planet gate punk. (laughs) 
god that's it on planet gate punk there are these creatures that will like kind of wave samus or like call your attention and you can't harm them yeah so you're me like who is this what is this and uh, the first ones i met there were these three little creatures that yes. like jumped up and down and then they started jumping and they were essentially bouncing off the wall to go up and if you try to chase after them you might learn like you could do that and you could do that the whole time it's tricky to do even if you know you can do it it's yeah. still hard to pull off but the whole game you could already wall jump so cool and this goes back to the sense of like i am doing i am learning the game yeah there are there are items given to you like the grappling hook and the missiles and the ice beam but then there are these moments that are just like here are options that you already had that might help you out another one is this like weird bird that runs and then just shoots he was my favorite he runs and then just goes straight up mm-hmm. so like once you have the super dash you learn that if you like stop and then jump you just rock it up yeah i thought those moments were brilliant and i really i really like that i i can see it honestly like i love and admire tunic but i find some of it to be so hands off that i can get really lost mm. i think that super metroid strikes a nice balance of like there are things that i know i have and then there are things that I discover that I could always do. Yeah. And once you have both, that's when the game feels much more open. And it's like, oh, wait, I can get up there by just freezing this enemy while jumping and then going through this door. And like, that's thrilling. That is so cool. And that is like much more present here than in Fusion or even Dread. Yeah. Um, which I really admire. It's one of the reasons I think going back and playing this game more than once is also really fun. Yeah. Not, that, not that I would always recommend you go back and you know replay a whole game a second time when there are so many other games that you could be playing. But going back into Super Metroid armed with the knowledge that the animals have given you from the top yeah is really really fun like if you know you can wall jump right from go there are a lot of very interesting things you can do and that's where a lot of the sequence breaking comes in uh that that people refer to as like a staple of metroid um is the ability to wall jump for example from go allows you access to crade's room like way before you're supposed to get there uh which is sick I love yeah. I love that stuff so much. I, it's awesome. I I think that's like a miracle. The like animals that teach you those uh those techniques early on. That's one of those things where I play it. I'm like I can't believe they thought of this in the 90s and pulled it off so well. Yeah, um, it's awesome. That that's like the the masterpiece theater moment for me. <laughs> I know for a fact there are some games that have like taken that idea. I mean, Tunic is one of them. Having a game give you tools that are like sort of just like fundamental knowledge of like options that already existed is a really clever idea. Yeah. And I, I kind of hope we see more of that in the future. I think it could be really powerful. You know, there are moments of tunic that feel like unparalleled because I'm like, Oh my God, like I, it just, it just changes the way you perceive the game. And it also adds to the feeling of the world being alive and like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, having these other creatures that aren't hostile even, you know, uh, Samus doesn't really encounter a ton of like NPCs like Alucard does. Like Alucard will bump into Maria or the librarian. There is like sort of people that you meet and yeah. they add more of that in later games. Like in Aria of Sorrow, there's a f- there are a few more characters there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite is the guy who's like clearly the antagonist. And someone's like, he seems cool. I don't know why everyone's so mad. <laughs> yes. It's it's very much like in Hot Fuzz where it's like uh, Timothy Dalton's character is like clearly the villain. Or he's like, I bet if we bashed your brains in, all sorts of secrets would come tumbling out. Um, it reminds me of that heavily. And I love that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like I think the animals are like the secret ingredient of, uh, of Super Metroid. Yeah. 
Hence why all the speed runs of this game are either save the animals or kill the animals. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. It all it all hinges on. Usually, that'll be like a, a donation goal where, like, if you hit a certain amount of money donated during a Super Metroid run, they'll save the animals. Uh, but usually, the faster thing is to let them die. Obviously, right? Because uh, during the escape, yeah. yeah, which is very silly. Do you have anything else about Super Metroid? I really it, this is one of those games where I just like I just think it's great, and yeah, I the, I have such yeah. a hard time saying anything, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's like every now and then there's a game that's so good. It's just sort of us pointing at like a star being like, look at it. Look, yeah. it's twinkling. <laughs> uh, not to say that, you know, uh, Symphony of the Night isn't also cosmic, but it's a little bit more yeah. of like, look at Mars. Look how weird and red it is. It's more knowable. I get it. The hype is real. And it's really cool to play a game that, again, set the foundation, but is so good on its own merits. Like, in so- I don't wish this to be, but I think the series could have stopped here. And we would have the same level of admiration for it, mm. you know, um, as much as I think that iterations like developed Metroid and, and improved upon it. And there are things I like more about fusion and I like more about dread and I'm really excited to play the prime games, especially yeah. it's a whole other side to Metroid. I haven't experienced really other than my brief time with three, but I do think that this, it, this feels like the, the nucleus of Metroid. Like I feel like everything is kind of in orbit. Not that it's like better or worse, but I just feel like super Metroid is like the heart of what the series is to me. I'm going to say two things here. Yes, please do. One that one that's a link between both of these games, Super Metroid and Symphony of the Night, which is that I feel like when you start playing these games, and this is the case with a lot of retro games, but you know, these are kind of like longer slogs in, in a way, like these are going to take you a longer amount of time. Uh, Symphony of the Night is like 10 to 12 hours. This game, Super Metroid, uh can be like 4 hours, usually ends up being closer to like 6 to 8, but it's still pretty short. Yeah. Um, but that's still like hours of gameplay. You will, over the course of those games, start off thinking my character moves very slowly and uh, the controls, like even if you have all the movement options and stuff available to you, it'll be like this feels a little bit like they didn't quite nail the movement. It, it feels like the controls are fighting against you at times. You will slowly over the course of time feel better about it. Like you will you will get a better understanding of like how high Alucard's jump is or how high Samus's jump is going to be um, exactly how far your attacks can reach and things like that. Like you'll you'll start to wrap your head around it. So if you start playing either of these games, dear listener, and you're like, I'm not sure if I feel very good moving through the world, you will eventually lock into it and you'll kind of understand it uh, in time. The second thing I want to say is that. I do wish that they would remake Super Metroid. Like, I mm. I think that this game is awesome. It still looks great. It still plays great. But I do wish that there was some kind of revisiting. And it, I don't think it needs to be in, like, the Dread engine or something. Um, but there is a small piece of me that kind of wishes, do the art just, like, a little bit more high fidelity, lock in the motion just a little bit more. And I think it's like a no brainer to recommend to anybody. Cause even that little bit of friction of like, you're going to feel pretty hampered by the movement uh, and the traversal through space for the first couple hours is, is a little bit of a a, a difficult pill to swallow. I think for some people, whereas if they had, you just, it's like so few tweaks. Cause I mean, you go and you play fusion or zero mission and they feel amazing. Yeah. So good from go. I agree. I feel like we talk a lot about how like, I think we're both against the idea of remakes serving as like a replacement for the original, but I definitely think you're right that Super Metroid could definitely use like a blue point remake. Like I feel like the Shadow of the Colossus remake comes to mind where like that game on PS2 is a masterpiece, but like there is that like extra barrier and it's it's great that on PS4 you can basically experience the same game and like made by people who have a reverence for the original all while not seeking to replace it. You know, there's not mm-hmm. like 
you know, that you can still, I mean, it's harder to find, but you can still get, I almost said Symphony of the Night. You can get Shadow of the Colossus for PS2 if you want. And I feel like Super Metroid and maybe like a touched up Super Metroid would be awesome. I think that would be a great idea. And also like the series has become much more popular over time. It's been kind of like a slow burn of a series, but even still Metroid Dread, I think it's the best selling Metroid game. It is. Yeah. By far. But again, compared to like, it's still in that like B team of Nintendo sales. Cause like yeah. Mario, Zelda, even Splatoon are selling tens of millions of games. So like this is still a cult hit. Uh, even though it's grown significantly. And I think it would be cool to have like a clear entry point because Dread is also very difficult and that's going to turn off a lot of people. So I feel like having a brushed up version of Super Metroid, and thankfully, credit credits do, Super Metroid is also part of the Nintendo Online Super Nintendo Library. That's where I played it primarily. Yeah. So that's awesome that it's just there. But I do think there is that little ask. Uh, I think you're right to point that out. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just got that feeling slowly while I was playing the game. It was like I th- I think I think if somebody brushed this up a little bit, it would be it would be like a no brainer. Let's put a pin in that because I, I I think that relates to the Resident Evil Four remake that I want to talk about in uh, <laughs> an upcoming episode of the show. But should we uh, should we put a pin in this and come back and and answer some questions? We saved the animals. We 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 achieved our goal. Let's uh, set sail to the stars and bid farewell to Planet Zebus. That sounds great. All right. All right. (laughs) See you later. We are back. Planet Zebus and Dracula's castle behind us. Now we are reunited with our friends. Listener questions. Just a big thanks to everyone who submitted these. We got a lot of good ones. As always, I couldn't include all of them. But I tried to choose ones that were kind of representative of a lot of questions asked, Uh, one of which I just want to start with at least five different people asked if we had plans on doing a Hollow Knight bonus. So I just want to say yes, probably. Um, That's something that we obviously already said that the original idea for this episode was to be a Hollow Knight bonus. But I think we still have intentions on doing that one day. Yeah, I can't Um, wait to finally play that game. I've heard really good things about it. The thing about Hollow Knight is like it was so early in our show that we first brought it up. And then, you know, we talked about it in our very first game of the year episode. And I feel like early on, I felt pressure to kind of constantly check out new stuff. Mm. And I feel like Hollow Knight kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. Yeah. Um. So I'm really looking forward to like committing to it because I also love it. And I, I really want to talk more about like specifically the world and the rich lore and, and all that stuff. So that, that will happen one day. That's yeah. Um, I have mentioned many times one of my favorite games of all time. I still feel that way. Uh, it was my game of the year. The first year we did the show, I played it like right before the show even existed. It was yeah. a little bit honestly, and I've said this on the show as well, but it was a little bit of an impetus for into the aether in the first place it was like, I was loving hollow Knight so much. I was like, man, I want to talk about video games on a podcast again. Cause I am yeah. doing that. Um, so shout out to hollow Knight for that. Um, I also have a full Let's Play of Hollow Knight on our YouTube channel already. It's worth mentioning. Um, I did that two years ago, I want to say. Uh, like, the depths of winter was just getting up really early every morning. I was like, I might as well do something useful and just streamed <laughs> Hollow Knight for an hour every morning before work uh, and played the whole game. So you can go check that out, too, if you if you want. I love Hollow Knight being your kind of callback to talking about games more critically and to yeah. starting the show. I think my version of that was Persona, Persona 5. Persona, yeah. Yeah. 
Cause like, <laughs> I remember I like got a, my friend a copy of the game just to have like someone else to talk to about it. Like I just, <laughs> I just need to let this out. Um, obviously it was a huge hit, but like in my immediate circle, no one had played it yet. And I was already on to the third and fourth game. I was a lost cause at that point. Um, but it mm. definitely, definitely re-inspired me to connect to what was coming out. You know, yeah. I'm like, Oh, like there are games coming out that are just as exciting, if not more so than the ones like I grew up with or played in college. Mm. Um, so it was, it was a big moment for me. Uh, so yes, Hollow Knight one day. As I already mentioned, also, this episode was originally a Hollow Knight bonus. And then we were like, yes. we, we need to take a step back and talk about <laughs> the genre of gate punk before we. Uh, we need fully... to do gate punk first. Yeah, exactly. uh, speaking of gate punk, here's the next question. Sure. At Handshake Hug on Twitter. Now that you're into classic adventure games, which I assume is in reference to our Grim Fandango episode. Oh, yeah. Now that you're into classic adventure games, what Metroidvania would you like to see as an adventure game and what adventure game as a Metroid? I love this question. Do you have answers already? I feel like you could make a case for Psychonauts being a good Metroidvania. I think like it's already a platformer mm. and I wonder if I would argue that it is actually a little bit of one already. already. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it does have, so I guess, you know, in that whole spiel I had towards the top of the episode, I, I sure did just skirt around actually defining what I consider to be a Metroidvania in the first place. <laughs> Whoops. Um, but I don't consider like the 2d side of it to be inherent to the genre at all. I think, I think just like as, as video games have evolved, obviously things have transcended uh their original perspectives uh so uh, you know you can have 3d metroidvanias i really just think of it as like areas that are gated based on abilities or techniques that you'll unlock throughout the course of play like that's, so gate punk really is a more apt name i guess i super i mean this wholeheartedly i think gate punk is a better name than metroidvania i can't believe i just like mr magooed my way into a better name <laughs> That's amazing. I'm covered in anchovies, but I did say gate punk. <laughs> gate punk. <laughs> <Just like that. laughs> I don't know if that's how he sounds, but it's Hanna-Barbera enough. I don't even know if it's Hanna-Barbera. It's Thank not. You. I don't think, but. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if so, if you make a case that uh, I'll try again, then. So Psychonauts is already gate punk. Honestly, I, I haven't really played a ton of Monkey Island, but I just thought that would be a fun setting oh, for yeah. a Metroidvania, like having that kind of nautical. I feel like there aren't a lot of like funny Metroidvanias, like they're usually fairly somber or isolating. I guess Castlevania might. Honestly, I think we've learned something that Metroidvanias are gate punk and Castlevania is a comedy series. That's I think <laughs> I think that's what we're we're discovering yeah. here. But like it's camp. It's all Rocky Horror. I, yeah. I, I think the closest any of these games gets to comedy and it's a little bit troubling, I, I think, in, in some regards. But the Guacamelee series, those two games, I see. Yeah, I feel like um, try and be funny sometimes, but also are like dealing with some pretty heavy shit. So it's yeah. a little bit of a give and take there. But those games are great. They're really, really, really well done. And I guess in terms of what adventure game, well, I already did adventure. So Monkey Island, I think, would be my choice. Mm. A Metroidvania as an adventure game. I mean, that that's to me, there are way more options there for some reason, because I, I think that there's a lot I'd love to learn about the worlds of of these games. I would say probably not Metroid, because I think Metroid inspires the imagination by giving you like a solitary piece of it. Mm. And I wonder if you would lose a bit by giving it too much. Like, I think Fusion is like the perfect amount of like dialogue I want in a Metroid, you know? Yeah. Castlevania, though, I think I would love an adventure game for like talking to like, you know, Victorian vampires and like exploring that oh, whole yeah. world. I think it could be a lot of fun. And I would say that Hollow Knight, too. Like, I just think that world is so rich that I think you could have a lot of fun with just like 
like honestly like no combat like i would just love exploring and like maybe seeing the world before it fell to the state in which it is in hollow knight so those would be my answers do you have any others what adventure game as a metroid is very interesting i don't know if i have i don't know if i have an answer for that one in particular but i am just thinking about like other now now that we've established that symphony of the night just kind of like took the reins off of what Metroidvanias can be. It just said like any game can be, you know, any intellectual property can be grafted onto a Metroidvania structure and probably be interesting at least, especially if you like think about it. I do think uh, Mario would be really fun. Like if, <laughs> if you just took like the Mario side scrolling jumping and turn that into a metroidvania somehow i would love that i'm also in the middle of playing the new mario plus rabbits and now that i play that like anything is possible you could mario's got a gun in that game mario's got two guns in that game once you give mario two laser guns you can have mario do anything and i think putting mario in a metroidvania would be really fun i know it's not an answer to the adventure game one I was laughing. It's a great idea, but I was laughing because for some reason, my first image was like the Samus dying in armor falling off screen, but it's Mario just going like, what? Turning into like a skeleton. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, With like the scariest skeleton ever, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, (laughs) looks like a tortoise skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. so anyway, that that's that's one answer. The other one, what Metroidvania would you like to see as an sorry, what gate punk game would you like to see as an adventure game? Yeah, thank you. The big one for me, and this is this is one that's gone kind of under the radar, but I really, really, really loved it when it came out. Uh is it is I think by Epic Games, I think was who made it? It was. It was Epic Games. And it was called Shadow Complex for the Xbox 360. Oh yeah. I think I, I remember hearing about this. Yeah. It, it was an Xbox Live arcade game specifically. So it was like digital only, it was in that era of like Xbox releasing a bunch of digital only stuff. Um, and was this absolutely like wild? It was supposed to be kind of like a military espionage shooter situation, but in a Metroidvania style, um, but allowed for just like some re- like they really took the sequence break idea of Metroid and like took it to the nth degree. So one of the first things you get pretty early on is this gun that shoots foam, very similar to Prey, like the newest version of mm. Prey, where you can shoot foam anywhere and then like build bridges into areas that you absolutely should not be able to get to that early in the game. They just didn't care at all. They really cared more about the power fantasy of letting you like do whatever you wanted. But I would be interested in seeing that game retold kind of as an actual more like espionage, you're a guy who shouldn't be in this military complex yeah. kind of thing. That's much more slower paced and involves you like kind of actually sneaking around and learning things via like emails and stuff. I think that'd be very interesting because Shadow Complex, I think, kind of comes from the like, you know, post Zack Snyder world where like 300 was like the coolest manliest thing ever. And shadow complex was this like gritty Metroidvania. This isn't your dad's Metroidvania, you know, (laughs) it's like this is for a new generation of men uh, who love protein. Uh, (laughs) I love gates. I love sex pistols. (laughs) If only someone could bind the two. It kind of had that that vibe to it for some reason, um, but I like the idea of seeing the world of Shadow Complex through kind of a more actual like spy vibe. Yeah, that I think a spy adventure game would be awesome. Yeah, that's a great idea. Oh, you mean Spy Fox by Humongous Entertainment? I mean, when you're right, you're right, dude. Yeah. Some assembly required. Am I right or what? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, Chris Mize in Discord. Despite the genre starting from two games, so many Metroidvania seem to have taken more inspiration from Metroid than from Castlevania, although lately there has been a resurgence of Castlevania-inspired titles. Why do you think that is? 
That's a great question. I think you're right to point out that like there definitely are there's there's a good amount of games that are very much like I think uh, Deadlit and Wonder Labyrinth, like I mentioned earlier, very clearly going for more of a Castlevania RPG centric environment. I, I would think, also argue that Hollow Knight is more Castlevania than Metroid, just yeah. to be clear. Hollow Knight's world reminds me a lot of Symphony of the Night by the time you've unlocked enough traversal abilities where they're just saying, like, yes. just go poke at the edges of what's available. Like, what room, like when you open up the map, what rooms have you not gone into yet? That's what Hollow Knight feels like the whole time. And it takes a long time to get there for Symphony of the Night, but Hollow Knight is like, you pretty much have a lot of this open at your disposal from Go. Um, so I, I think structurally it's taking more from Symphony of the Night than from than from other Metroid games. Yeah, I would say if, if there is an imbalance, if if more are citing Metroid or maybe it's more visibly Metroid inspired, I think that's just because Metroid is, like we said earlier, it's, it's more minimalist, it's simpler. So I think it's easier as a branching off point than Castlevania, which feels more like specifically you know they like it's clear that symphony of the night took super metroid's idea and put their own spin on it so i think like to cite symphony of the night specifically as influence is sort of like a spin on a spin in some ways you know whereas i think metroid is kind of more of a i guess it's a more inviting canvas because i feel like there's there's enough simplicity that it might inspire more ideas to add to or subtract from. Yeah. Whereas Symphony of the Night, I think, has a lot going on, which, like, I think if you're saying I'm inspired by Castlevania, you're probably taking a piece of it because there's so much on display there, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, I think for Hollow Knight, like, the relics and all, like, the items you can, like, or, or they're, like, pins or something. I forgot the name of them. But, yeah, like, I know what you mean. that feels like the relics in Symphony of the Night. Um, although they add to it in the sense that, like, that you can have combinations that do weird things and and uh yeah so i that would be my guess but i think at this point they kind of have all sort of bled and morphed into each other that i don't know even if you consciously say it's one over the other i think both these games are just sort of in the air at this point so there's probably a mix going on regardless i would say i mean personally this is this is my opinion to be clear um i i i do feel like metroidvania more leans towards metroid in terms of like the the branching off point for this as a genre i mean obviously it came yeah. first which i think is the kind of the important thing uh is that super metroid just got so much right about this kind of structure that as soon as you have this kind of structure in a video game it feels more like metroid um castlevania i feel like is more of like a tone and a vibe and and, and imbuing it with rpg elements is kind of where the metro sorry it's where the castlevania side comes from in my opinion so when i think like oh there were a lot of games that were taking more for metroid it's because they were more focused on structure than on the rpg side and stats and like gaining a bunch of items and things um the only game that i think like really though nails just like being a metroid like specifically not a not a metroidvania but a metroid like specifically and also becomes its own thing is axiom verge that game Mm harkens so much back to the original look of metroid um and so quickly deviates from what you expect of that and uses that that expectation of the player because of what the game looks like to completely uh 180 on you and become a completely different thing which uh is masterful it's really good i'm not a huge axiom verge fan personally but i do respect the hell out of that game being like i'm gonna look exactly like metroid for nes and then be the wildest thing you can think of (laughs) instead um i have not played the second one i have to get around to that i also think it's reverberating that it, it seems evident that the name of the genre is just it was more born out of what do we call these new style of Castlevania games versus like a genre is born. Yes. Like that wasn't really, I think until 
the late 2000s that that was a term used, I think, in sort of a post cave mm-hmm. story world. Not to say that Castlevania Symphony of the Night doesn't deserve a lot of credit, but again, I think the credit is more due to like, you can do this too, versus like the genre is equal parts both of us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's just my observation, at least. Uh, but again, I think both games have been wildly influential at this point in time. Moving on. Thick Tan Pretzel on Twitter. Other genres are usually named for the style of gameplay, shooter, platformer, etc. If these two franchises didn't exist, what would this genre be called? Gatepunk. Gatepunk. I, I was really looking forward to this question, and we preemptively answered it. So yeah, you got the name. It's Gatepunk, baby. Moving on. <laughs> Trador on Twitter. What's your take on combining the lore and mechanics into a literal Metroidvania game? Can it be done, and how would you do it? So I'm assuming this means like you are actually combining the series. Tell me what's more fun. The idea of Samus traveling to a planet that is kind of like 1800s or maybe Victorian era inspired uh, where all of this Castlevania shit is going down on this planet. It looks like Earth, but isn't Earth. It's just a, a planet where like for some reason things have evolved in such a way where Castlevania exists and there are vampires and all these horrible creatures or alternatively Metroid is far future after the Earth of Castlevania. Which one is which one is more interesting? Because Metroids are are vampires, to be clear. That's true. That's a great point. I never thought about that. Currently, and you can you can change my mind on this if you feel strongly, but I would currently say I would be more interested in Samus going to a planet that is like Victorian vampire land mm-hmm. because that reminds me of a lot of my favorite TNG episodes where like yeah. the the crew find a place that's like of a different time. And I feel like Alucard being like, what are these machines? Just makes me feel a little sick. Like, it's like there's something about that doesn't really work as well. I think also seeing Samus having to navigate a new alien environment differently. Like, it's okay. This may be, maybe this is more of like a social navigation. Like, I have to deal with like other characters here all of a sudden. Or I have to like get good at like melee weapons or whatever. And like, I think... Like basically like almost making Samus into like a steampunk science fantasy character. Sounds awesome. Alucard in space is a little bit too much for me. I'm not ready for that. But I think far future, like I, I like the idea of you not necessarily advocating for Alucard in space, but like that like we are in sort of a like cyberpunk version of of Castlevania. Yeah, we're 2500 years post Symphony of the Night in Metroid 1. That's kind like Aria of Sorrow isn't unlike that because that is set in like I, I believe present day Japan. Yeah, they they got a flip phone. Yeah, in that game, <laughs> there are a lot of flip phones in the DS library, which I love. Like yeah, so many awesome. games are about having a flip phone. Um, <laughs> but like Kirby and the Amazing, oh no, that was Game Boy Advance. They were ahead of the game with that one. <laughs> um, Selma Cruz and and his partner get get transported to Dracula's castle via lunar eclipse. Yeah. So we actually, not only do we have a vampire connection, but we have a cosmic connection mm. to Dracula's castle. So I think that could be a perfect, if, if Samus is like flying her ship and there's like a weird eclipse in space that pulls her into, into Dracula's castle. Perfect. Yeah. You and I have toyed with the idea of doing an into the aether game jam at some point, uh, and have been like, Oh, should we do this? Should we not do this? I don't want a game jam anymore. I just want somebody to put Samus in the original <laughs> Castlevania. 
Oh shit! That's I mean that's yes yes. Give yes. me give me a projectile arm cannon in the first Castlevania. Give me spacesuit tech. Yeah, against the mummy. Yeah. Yes. Hell yeah. I do still kind of want to do a game gem eventually, but uh, yeah. I think you're right to demand that first. Here's an here's another question for us, bravest boy on Twitter. What's your ideal playtime for a Metroidvania game? Honestly. I would say, and maybe this is because we have a podcast about video games and we're playing a lot of stuff. <laughs> 14 minutes. But rarely <laughs> have I felt a game was too short, which is funny because mm. for whatever reason, every like truly every video game review before 2007 has some complaint about the game being too short. Yeah. Like it's like <laughs> nowadays I am craving like I think most games should be between 15 to 30 hours. I say that as a huge persona fan that has played all of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are games that benefit from being longer. I think usually games that are more open world or games that are uh, that I think the the thing is like the length of the game should be determined by like the player and not what the game is demanding of them. If that makes sense. So like if I am genuinely enjoying a game enough to like really fall into it and give it that amount of time, that's a really fun experience. But usually I find that a game is longer than I, than I think it should be. So for Metroidvania specifically, that's all about kind of untangling a knot. I honestly think that both these games are the perfect length. I think eight to 10 hours it feels much longer, which I promise is not an insult, but it really does feel like a more significant amount of time than eight hours in Persona, which is like just walking out of the house. Yeah. Um. So that would be my answer. Mm. I, I think I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I, th- yeah. I, th- I think eight to ten hours is a pretty good spot for it. That was one of the interesting things about Hollow Knight going back to it and replaying that is uh, my first playthrough of that game, I think, was like 20 to 30 hours. And then my second playthrough, the one that I did on YouTube, I think is closer to 10 or less, which is pretty wild. Yeah. And I, I like that, too. Like, I like when re- like replaying Bloodborne, for example, like I feel like is a much yeah. faster experience, yeah. like at least in that beginning chunk, because I feel like what took me maybe like 20 hours to get to Father Gascoigne and beat him is now like I've done that on stream multiple times at this point. Mm hmm. So, you know, I'm good at Bloodborne now. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, Jared and Discord. Which Metroidvania and Castlevania games are best for people with little to no experience in either series, but loved Hollow Knight and some other indie Metroidvanias? For the sake of ease of answering the question, I'm just going to exclude. I'm glad you played Hollow Knight and other indie Metroidvanias, but I do think I like the question of like, what's the starting point for, for Gate Punk? What's like, what's the starting pack? In terms of, I want to give three answers here just to help frame it. Um, I want to give an answer for Metroid, what I think is the best Metroid game to start with. I want to say what the best Castlevania game to start with is. And then I'm going to say, like, uh, I want to try to say what's, like, the best, like, indie Metroidvania or the one to play after that. But for Metroid, I would say Zero Mission is, like, a really great starting point. It's really chill. It's pretty easy to understand and pick up, but it's also going to give you the vocabulary you need to play the other games. For Castlevania, I honestly think either Arya of Sorrow or Portrait of Ruin. Portrait of Ruin is kind of weird, and I feel like you might... Uh, it might be like it might not give you the vocabulary necessary because it is kind of a deviation. So I think Ori of Sorrow might be my answer for that. Um, in terms of indie, I think Ori would be my pick because I just think that game is so beautiful and so like easy to pick up control wise. Um, the, the feeling of momentum, like you're going to have fun in that game, even if you're lost, because it's great to just run around and climb stuff. Uh, Ori 2 specifically. Ori 1, I feel like is is not quite on the same level, but Ori 2 would be my like 
my intro. Oh, pick. interesting. I, yeah. I was going to say that you and I have the exact same answers for all three, but I would say the first Ori over the second one. Oh, um, really? Yeah, just to start and then and then make your way to the second one. Because I think if you like the second one enough and you want to go backwards, it's going to be difficult. That's true. But if you play the first one, then you'll really love the second one. Um, you're setting yourself up for success, I think. That's that true. Uh, you can also make your own checkpoints in the first Ori, which is a blessing and a curse because you don't have to backtrack to a save room. But I always forget. Yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, just to double down on it, I do think Zero Mission is the starting point for Metroid. Um, don't try and play the original. Just play Zero Mission. It's the same game, but better. Uh, so go do that. Um, that game is awesome. So good. Zero, missions, zero Mission rules. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Moving on. Next question from Dom in Discord. I've seen a lot of sentiment that getting lost is a core experience of Metroidvanias, specifically more on the Metroid side. Do you guys consider getting lost a means for immersion in the world, or do you think there could be a better way to build that world as you explore them without cycling through areas to look for the next piece of the puzzle to unlock? I love this question. I have a quick answer to this. I, I just think that people have figured out how to better telegraph where you're supposed to go next in these games symphony of the night and super metroid both great so grateful that both of them have maps the maps are not as good as yes. they become in future games specifically the biggest thing in the entire world that makes future future iterations of metroidvania so much better is little indications between rooms especially rooms that you haven't been to of what you need to use to get through them. Some, you know, I, I think like Metroid's a great example where future games will show like a green door for power bombs or or super rockets or whatever, or sorry, super missiles that will indicate like you need a super missile to get through here. It'll mark that on your map. So when you eventually get super missiles, you'll know which places are now available to you now that you have that new ability. That by itself is so huge and so helpful. Um, Jedi Fallen Order, weirdly enough, also does a really good job of that uh, with with their uh, traversal mechanics that they lay yeah. onto that game. I don't really th think of that game as a Metroidvania, but it does have a Metroidvania map, which is really interesting and, and uses it to great effect. I, I think that personally, I don't consider getting lost to be a core part of the experience. I also don't think it's always a failing but I do think it is frequently a failing of games that are trying to do this kind of thing because a game like Hollow Knight, which I love so, so, so dearly works, I think, in this regard, because I don't feel like I'm getting lost. I feel the pull to explore places. And if you feel pulled to explore a world, you're not getting lost. You're just doing the thing you want to be doing. Yes. Whereas in some earlier games in the genre you end up literally just getting a lot and you just don't know what to do. And you've seen everything that there is to see. You're not poking at the edges of things and being rewarded for doing so. You're like shooting every single wall, hoping to God that one of them breaks away so you can continue playing the game, which is not as fun as, as um, engaging with the world. I totally agree. That's why I recommend Ori because I think in Ori, like you will get lost and stuck, but because of the platforming and the way the control feels, like, it always feels like you're playing Ori. So I think either the central mechanic needs to be really fun or you feel like you are in a world operating on its own schedule and rhythm independent of your intervention, mm. which I think adds to this feeling of place and not like the game pauses when I don't know I have to buy the jewel of opening. Yeah. Not to dwell on that, but it really shook me <laughs> up. But yeah, I, I think this is a problem that's mostly been solved by better games in the genre since. Um, totally. And, and I think as we go forward, that's very much a thing that I'm going to be looking for. Like as I continue to play Metroidvanias in the future, sorry, gate punk games in the future, I really, <laughs> I really am going to be considering like, am I just lost straight up 
with no no indication of where I should be going next? Or is the world interesting enough to make the act of getting lost feel like I, I have a path or I feel like I'm doing the thing that I want to be doing? This is something that Elden Ring, uh, yes. amongst many other things, gets really right, because like there is a lot of weird Simon's Quest stuff going on with like, oh, meet this character here and and have this item equipped and blah, blah, blah. And like a lot of that, I think, is esoteric and not all of it is like perfectly executed. Yeah. But it never gets in the way of enjoying the game because at any point you can choose to do something else. Right. Usually like progression is never halted, even amongst the hardest bosses. There's always something else to do. And that world also feels very much alive. So like while you're pursuing one thread, you'll find four others. Mm-hmm. Um, Elden Ring obviously is an incredible game that maybe is an unfair point of comparison. But I do think it's exploring a lot of ideas that are present in these games. Uh, moving on to the last question, unless you had anything else to add to that. No. This is from TK in the Discord. Do you think there are lessons from Super Metroid or Symphony of the Night that have not yet been learned by more modern takes on the genre? I kind of already said this, but for Super Metroid, I think the idea of rather than always just giving items that progress, giving the player knowledge that previously existed, I think is a really cool thing that I'd love to see more of. And Symphony of the Night, I think the lesson that I would take from that game is like to have fun with potential power combinations and to be comfortable letting the player experience their own version of the game. Um, I've described some games that remind me of this path of influence like Dragon's Dogma as like a game of Dungeons and Dragons where the DM has left the table. And there's a huge place for a game like that. Honestly, it's I wouldn't say it's gatepunk, but Skyrim has that feeling of like, just do whatever. You'll find a bunch of cool stuff and like, yeah, you'll have fun with it and it will feel organic to your playthrough. And I, I kind of like that hands-off approach to power. And it's tricky to pull off well because like if it's totally hands-off, it's gonna feel weightless and frivolous. But I think if you if you have enough like challenge and enough design in the world itself, I think the range of abilities can be greater. Cause I'm a little sick. I, I like a lot of modern AAA stuff, but I'm a little bit sick of the three skill trees. You know, I think that mm. there's something lost when you don't have like just some weird skill tree that doesn't really serve any direct purpose, but it's going to make your playthrough feel so much more unique in your character, feel unique to yourself. And I think that Symphony of the Night has a lot of that in it, like eating a hot dog in the middle of a Dracula fight and using your familiar or using like a weird weapon that's purposely bad. Like, I love all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think both of these games really get that third act right of like you have yeah. the whole world open to you and it's up to you to figure out if you want to progress or if you want to poke at every edge and see what you can find. Um, I think this kind of relates to the last question about getting lost. I don't consider those moments in Super Metroid and Symphony of the Night to be getting lost. That's more just like secret hunting, which is, I think, inherently always going to be a fun thing. Um, and I think not every game, not every modern gate punk game gets that right um <laughs> but some of them do and, and i you know i hate to always bring up hollow knight as the go-to but it's one of my favorite games ever so i'm always gonna bring it up uh, i'm always gonna evangelize for my guy the hollow knight but i think that that game taking that idea of the third act moment in a in a metroidvania game and saying like 
not only are you going to poke at the edges of the world and like get your upgrade for whatever your health or your soul meter or whatever um but to layer on a a, a level of like story and narrative on top of that to reward you not only with items and upgrades but also with more knowledge about the world that you're already so intrinsically connected to at that point was really 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 smart um, to have the last act of that game be like, what ending do you want? It's not like, are you just trying to make it to the end of the game? Are you trying to get powerful enough to fight the final boss? But like, do you want to get the final, final ending of this game the first time you go fight that final boss? Yeah. Then just look at everything that the world has to offer. Solve a bunch of riddles. Do a bunch of quests from strange NPCs who speak in riddles and uh, and you'll find some cool shit. That reminds me too of, weirdly enough, The Forgotten City, yeah. where there's actually a great... There's a Game Maker's Toolkit video about that game. And in an interview with the developer, they said the players should get the ending they deserve in the sense of like there are multiple endings of that yeah. game that range from like, OK, you can just do the thing that they tell you to do in the very beginning. Or if you are fully invested in like tying up every loose thread, you're going to get that like climactic, you know, very cathartic ending. Right. How early um, do you clock that that game is about morality? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think Hollow Knight's doing something similar. Also, I'm really then ironically this episode is just getting me more pumps to play hollow knight because i do think <laughs> and not that everything has to be ranked or be like superlative but i do think that hollow knight is currently the best execution of this genre like i think like it, uh, just overall i think like if you're looking at all the pieces here all the things you can take from super metroid and from uh symphony of the night and from the many games that have followed i think hollow knight is like another landmark release that will inform just games as a whole. And again, genre is not meant to limit, but to guide. And I think that Hollow Knight is proof that like on paper, yes, this is like all of like the trendiest buzzwords you can throw together, but Hollow Knight proves that it, it had meaning. Like it had a vision for a game that, that happened to be inspired by all those things and it pulled it off. Mm -hmm. So I think that like, you know, I, I just think that that's like a great way to look at the name of the genre is not limitation, but inspiration. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a great note to end on. I think so too. Uh, I, I'm, I am, I am having a massive panic attack now that gate punk has already been said. And I just forgot where, cause I feel so <laughs> proud of it now that I'm like, I must've <laughs> just heard that from someone. And like the minute we release this episode, someone's going to at me in the discord. Like actually like Oscar Wilde said gate punk, like back in the day. <laughs> um, and uh, I just, I hope that I'm wrong, but if I'm not, you're welcome. <laughs> so well thank you all so much for listening to this episode of into the aether it was a low-key video game podcast uh we do these bonus episodes every month about uh a game or an idea or a group of games uh, in this case all three based on the support of our patrons uh patreon.com slash into the cast as long as there's one person back in the patreon we will continue doing these bonus episodes um and uh, there are a lot more than one, thankfully. So thank you to everybody who's doing that. Yeah, thank you so much. Really means a lot. As we say every single week, uh, if back in the Patreon negatively impacts you financially, you don't have to do it. Uh, that said, we are working towards a $2,000 a month goal. If we hit that, we will do an episode about the Nintendo 3DS library in the style of our season premieres. As of the time of this recording, we are $50 away from that goal. We are 
dangerously close to needing to play every 3DS game. (laughs) Uh, So if you would like to heap an entire library of video games onto our playlists, back the Patreon. Outside of that, just want to give a shout out to everybody who asked questions. Thank you uh, for asking in uh, the Discord and on Twitter. Um, If you want access to the Discord, you can go to IntoTheCast.online. It's our link to everything, including the Discord, but also Instagram and YouTube and Twitch. Um, We're making a lot of content out there uh which is fun cool and good uh do you have anything else you want to add steven yeah i guess just quickly a note on the 3ds episode um i think it will be it's kind of funny because i think we originally level set is like it's not going to be the same degree of preparation as the ds one where like for a year we played over 120 ds games yeah I think it will be a little bit more of immediate interest, but I think we've also already made a playlist of like 60. So like that might've just been a lie either way. Yeah, I've been playing a lot I'm of really, stuff. I'm really excited at the prospect of that, of that episode. And, uh, you know, with the East store ending, it will be nice to sort of highlight our favorite games on that console. Uh, so thank you to all who are able to support the Patreon. It means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. With that, Steven Hilger, let's head into the inverted castle. I'll catch you later. I'll see you on the other side. Bye everybody. Nices. <laughs> he would not know whether it's them should making it off. Uh, it's it. No, there's no opening it. It's not so fit. Got the lips of jump sugar in the crow for the eve. Save me, Ned. Sylvie, Sam, and Valla. Slow cast room and doesn't still like that. Yeah, but the other one here. Hey, <laughs> 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 <
Hurry, 
Sleep, 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 sleep
If you're old school, the way you'd be an Afro, I but oh, well, we are girls and maggots, but some you laugh with an old girl thing, and I am not Eric's near our soup. I met an egg, it So, whether I was trying to be a lot, yeah, and then I'm a race of the tribe. Well, you're going to see that, you're going to see that. Or, fuck, I'm going to go, so I know what's going on, Mr. Knopf, see what you're doing now, and eat that demon, and eat the affair, and my dear, and I'll get affair, and I'll love it, and I'll get affair, 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 and Yeah, yes, it's so so fast for the bottle. I'm so sick,
my when and the beats catch and I on the air was their wife healing out full sack of the air and makes the if miss we the end of the but I'll learn we Yeah, snow with near old meal and 
Hey, I am not. 
Shum vehicle feet, 
Gelsa <laughs> <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but I'll get a little bit of 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 a little bit of
Die, monster! You don't belong in this world. It was not by my hand that I am once again given flesh. I was called here by humans who wish to pay me tribute. Tribute? You steal men's souls and make them your slaves. Perhaps the same could be said of all religions. Your words are as empty as your soul. Mankind ill needs a savior such as you. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. But enough talk. How about you? PWG, the worst garbage, the online.